This episode is brought to you by the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Straw Men. Maybe you think of them only as silent agricultural wardens fecklessly intimidating the local fowls. But every year in the autumn, sitting peacefully on porches and in front yards, straw men will be set upon, ruthlessly, violently, and unprovoked, by biological supremacists. You know who I mean. Rowdy youths, academics, social media polemicists, and flying monkeys. Pacifistic straw men will have their stuffing strewn about yards, their retro-fashion overalls thrown into bushes or left to hang in tree branches, their delicate pumpkin heads kicked rolling down residential streets. These attacks are abetted by media presentations that dehumanize straw men as mentally deficient sidekicks or, ironically, malevolent murderers of high schoolers. Now some will just shake their non-vegetable heads at these overt and systematic aggressions and look the other way but not the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Straw Men, and neither should you. For less than the price of a pumpkin spice latte, your donation to the SPCS will fund the Society's hospital charity to restuff a brutalized straw man, replace his gourd head, outfit him with a jaunty pitchfork or fall wreath, and when necessary, relocate him to a safer rural neighborhood. Thank you for your generosity to the gentle oppressed straw men everywhere. And thank you, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Straw Men, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Good day, evening, morning, whatever <laughs> it is where you're listening right now. We are here, and James, I have good news. What's that? This is the last episode about the play. Oh, we have finally, mercifully, mercifully, finally completed five long episodes. I don't know how many. I think it's actually been a couple months because we had the show well, we the in there too, yeah, and yeah. the break and everything. So it's been a long time since we've actually had Severian go do something. <laughs> Apart from that, yeah. but yes. So this is the last one you have to sit through. You may notice that it is probably, I think, one of the longest ones. So there's there's a lot in there. Right, yeah. But honestly, I am really, really happy that we've done this because I feel like I've learned a whole lot more about what actually is going on in the play, how it can fit together. You know, I know we're, of course, you're going to hear later that <laughs> James and Mark and I all have, there's there's lots of very different opinions of what we've taken out of it. And that's, but we all, that's good. But we all feel like we know what's going on. Yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> which is, you know, it's, so it's, it all worked out. We're, we're all quite happy, even though none of us agree. So um, I'm really happy that we were able to do this because I know once I first started to look around for commentary on Wolf or to just figure out what was going on, the, one of the first things I looked for was stuff about the play and the Brown Book stories to be like, oh, are these decodable or something mm -hmm. like that and lots of talk about the brown book plays not as much really like fewer people have been willing to really dive into the play and take a crack at really putting at it all together it. 
at yeah. solving it, at cracking yeah. it. And right? I feel like we've now, having done all this, we have a couple different ways of actually trying to get in there, muck around with the details and of solving the play of saying, here's what's going yeah, someone on. Can, someone can take this and, and go forward. I, yeah. Please go forward. We're not going back. So yeah. please go forward. Pick a, pick one of these methods, maybe. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yep. or mix I mean, them up and, and do some of your own. And Absolutely. But I just, it feels so good because I feel like that's something that I haven't seen. Plenty of people have tried to like overall summarize the thing, but but it never quite worked for me because then I'd always be like, okay, but what about this part? And how does yeah. this character, right. when exactly. they do yeah. this, do it? I feel like at the very least, I have guideposts now for for how to start to put context together for everything. So, mm-hmm. so it, was, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of talking, but I, I feel pretty good about it. Yeah. I'm, I feel like if I were to be in discussion with the play, I would have something to contribute. And that is something new for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 So loads of people say that when they reread the book that they'll skip the play or just Mm kind of skim over it or read some parts they like, but they don't really spend much time with it. But I think we finally have found a way to yeah. wander through all the details. Yeah, so, I think I could really urge someone not to do that. They, <laughs> there's, there's something to actually be gone for. And, you know, I guess we shouldn't say it's not it's not so. Look, uh, this d- discussion got contentious sometimes, right? We express oh, yeah. annoyance at some point. <laughs> but, Other people uh, expressed annoyance with us and, and, and with yes, the way that it, we were letting, letting totally each fair. other talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so but, it's it's a different kind of thing than we normally do. But also we had three people and you and Mark always have fun. Always, always, <laughs> always interesting how when Mark starts talking to somebody, there's there's contention. So both who are at the at the Shadow of Con know that Joan and Mark had a, a nice yes, 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 yes. You know. It was really, really great for Joan being there to yeah. kind of take up some of the load that I've having have to you know bear up under for the last what. 15 20 years so (laughs) but no so thanks and we say it again later on but thanks definitely to mark for coming in and spending a ton of time Mm -hmm. while this is going on while he's got tons of busyness going on in his life too so very kind of him to to help out and help us do that so so yeah so so we do some comments before we dive in uh yeah i think we should oh so we're now we're back in the saddle right after the disruptive shadow of the con you Mm -hmm. know I, i realize i haven't properly announce the flash fiction stories and the winners or send out the participants gifts. And I just really wanted to give them space to do it right. And, you know, next time we're going to do this, we're going to just make it its own thing. I don't think we're going to do it at a WolfCon. Um, I've been totally off my game for the month of September. I have to do that. I have to, I have recordings for Shadow of the Con that I hope to, will be usable. I have reader interview recordings to post, reader interview that are scheduled i'm really grateful that our listeners are just so agreeable and affable and uh also we need to get busy picking the location and venue for the next WolfCon. yep wow yep and so uh, sorry that we have been a little behind because we had all that going on i was getting my oldest son off to college that Mm -hmm. had me totally distracted for a long time and you know getting the semester started and all that kind of stuff so but now i think we're we're going to get back to much more regular things and get done with claw. So we can say that we're done with claw and start doing short sword. Yeah. Yeah. So one day at a time, let's get it back. And I also have a huge backlog of comments. I'll try to get to as many as are feasible. Let's see regarding the episode so far on Facebook. Mike Lejeune says favorite comment from Mark. 
Sometimes a mountain leaping to the ocean is just a mountain leaping into the ocean. <laughs> Favorite comment from Craig, you've out Borsky'd Borsky. Yeah, uh, I, I, I felt bad about that. <laughs> Ever since I said that, it was so funny at the moment, I thought, but I, but I feel bad. Because no, honestly, no, it's no. Not, not, not quite true yet. I don't no, we're still, look, we're all still are, friends. <laughs> are you, but maybe maybe Borsky 2.0 would, would be an improvement. So well, be- I don't mind being compared to Borsky, but I don't think you meant it in a good way. So let's just. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was one of our contentious moments. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Nudis McGrudis says. I enjoy how these episodes regarding the play are like a cognate of the play itself, an extended breach into the proper podcast, provoking extreme and varied opinions and filled with obscure information, lots of dialogue and an odd bit of lowbrow humor. A better parallel occurs to me. These eps are just like getting to eavesdrop on the Harajul's discussion amidst the play. Just don't go full ball danders and start assaulting your audience before it concludes. <laughs> that is true. I- Severian says that he heard people discussing things that mm-hmm. he couldn't imagine Talos ever thought at all. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, there is something apt. In and that. we might have flung a few flambeaux at each other. You, you people decide. One um, benefit of talking and not being in the same room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can't hit each other. We just <laughs> yes. break our own stuff. <laughs> so, uh, let's see, some people were just not loving the play. Uh, I confess this was me for a long period. But then I get to the end and wow, I feel better. And Stuart Ham says, I give about a half a teacup of I've known you guys since the Earth List and MySpace and am a huge fan supporter of the podcast and this page. Was having issues with the play podcasts until I arrived in Estonia, jet lagged beyond belief. But all I have to do is put on one of your episodes about the play and I am asleep in no time at all. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're awesome. just here to help out in any way you need us to. Yeah. Awesome. That'll be interesting in like a month from now or, or I mean a year from now when we check the download numbers and it's like, oh, interesting. Lots of people are skipping the play episode. <laughs> just no, like no. they skip it on the reread. They, they skip <laughs> they, the they, they'll skip it here too. Well, I guess yeah. that's appropriate. Let's see. Ori uh, Kaworski. says, uh, it all seems like a beautiful, hazy dream that goes on forever. However, if I can still get my foot in the door for this chapter, it seems to me that one fruitful way to look at the play is to think of Dr. Talos as a kind of Dali or mid-journey AI, creating art out of various religious and cultural inputs that Talos has been exposed to as a matter of course, some of which might be from the Hierodules, but much or most or all of which might come from just observing what people in general talk about while on his travels. This would make interpreting the play a thankless task as looking at some AI art and trying to guess not only the prompts used, but the historical truth value of those prompts. For what it's worth, I think the play is there to establish the stakes of the book in a typically Wolfian way, opaque on the surface, shocking when apprehended, but also to express in a roundabout way the religious and cultural vernacular of Earth. Looking forward to the next. Well, here we come. Yeah. Yep. I like that. That's that's in many ways where I think I've I've come up on at the end. In, include not quite, not exactly the AI thing. I think just to give a hint, I feel like 
Talos may have a little bit more intentionality in what's going on, <laughs> but, but still, even so, I think I like that idea. I mean, I like the the notion that what Talos is doing is maybe consciously or not, he's filtering all kinds of things that do make their way in here and are suggestive. And Wolf's done a, a cool way. It's a cool excuse for Wolf to say a lot of things sideways mm-hmm. that yeah. that suggest things and and open up possibilities, but also still seem very strange and occluded. So right. I like it. But you no, know, I think he's right too about really what the play does in the end. So yeah, I like it. Let's see on Reddit, Hippocamelus uh, likes the outros. The last we had was uh, The Statue Got Me High by They Might Be Giants. He says that on Wikipedia, quote, some fans have compared the song to Mozart's Don Giovanni, itself a reworking of a story known as Don Juan. There are some interesting similarities between the play and Don Giovanni. Here we have another theatrical performance that includes a statue that moves and speaks, mm-hmm. a character named after their military title, Il Commodore instead of uh, Generalissimo, and demons. And another possible parallel, for a long time it was performed without including the final scene. I haven't found any other plot or symbolic parallels, but it is an interesting pile of coincidences. I, that I guess. is interesting indeed. Yeah. And yeah, that I saw that after uh, we finished talking to Mark. And so I wasn't able to bring it up. But that's one of those things where there's just enough that it seems like, oh, there has to be something. in that <laughs> I want and, there to be something. And, yeah, and, and Don Giovanni, I mean, as far as opera goes, like Wolf doesn't seem like a huge opera fan unless i've missed something but don giovanni is so famous especially for older generations it's kind of like uh you know carmen or some other kinds of Mm -hmm. things where where they just the the general outlines of them were very known so it wouldn't surprise me at all if there is intentionally some of that in there and i definitely need to read through a lot of it again thinking about that because that's that's really cool yeah, I'm not much of an opera guy, but maybe I'll have to force my way through that one. I'd love an explanation of the Generalissimo, for yeah. sure. That's one of the few I've actually seen actually in person. My my cousin and my uncle are both like huge opera nerds, um, but I never was, but I've seen a couple. But Don Giovanni, I got to see one on the Notre Dame campus one time by a professional company. It was really, really cool. But hmm. but yeah, I don't know much about opera. I've, well, I've heard, I've heard it said that the best way to introduce kids to opera is to let them see, you know, so, like something from Mozart. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Ingrid Bergman actually did a version of magic flute on film, which is really cool. And it kind of starts off as the opera house. And then as time goes on, it becomes realistic and you're in the world of magic flute and everything. And, and it's so filled with fantasy stuff and possible weird Masonic symbolism and all kinds of cool stuff going on that, that it's fun. That's a good one. I that one. I know one of my sons actually did watch that because I either saw that on some streaming service or it was on one time, and I had to watch it again. And they they actually stuck with me and watched the whole thing. Wow! Never yeah. wanted to hear the music again, even when I offered. They were like, <laughs> "Nope," but good enough. <laughs> yep, but they paid attention through the whole thing, mm-hmm. so that's pretty good. So on Reddit, uh, Turambar twenty nine says. I've really enjoyed you guys having Mark Aramini on again for these episodes. It was fun to see Mark and James flip places on the literal versus metaphorical approaches too, which brings to mind as a new reader of Wolf, he seems to have the ability to set up a scenario where we expect a metaphorical payoff only to eventually resolve in a way that is more literal and profound 
than I at least anticipated. Oh, you have won my heart, Turnbar29. <laughs> James is right in my case. I did not expect a literal flood when Severian became the new son. I thought it would be something metaphorical, but it was literal without being merely material. The implications of the flood and the new son are powerfully spiritual and transformative for humanity. Wolf seems to enjoy doing this, perhaps a tool in his anti-materialist toolbox that seems very biblical. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, he goes on. He says, uh, for instance, your discussion is helping me see how eschatology and Genesis deals with individuals who have significance for future of humanity. This seems to me to be an echo of biblical texts like uh, Genesis 3.15, where it says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It might be reasonable to expect a struggle between the descendants, plural, of the woman and the descendants, plural, of the serpent. But the fulfillment is more literal, a singular figure in the person of Jesus, and more profound, the crushing of the serpent at the crucifixion of Jesus entails a transformation of humanity. Likewise, Revelation 12, 4 through 5 states, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with an iron rod, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The figures are literally fulfilled. Mary, Jesus, yet achieve a universal and spiritual impact as well. I really like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And I think there's probably a lot of moments and little things in the play that probably do have more biblical illusions going on like that that we just didn't either catch or or yeah there's, entirely there's so many going yeah. on but but yeah the, like especially the first third of the play everything kind of has a biblical context to it so wouldn't surprise me that there's a whole lot of detail and stuff in there so yeah yeah oh uh, also on reddit uh michael andre durisi of lexicon earthis and other books has been going through the Arabian Nights. I knew this, but he's come away with some applicable nuggets regarding the Al-Zabo. Uh, you know, it's always bugged me that Wolf has a, a very particular explanation of the legend of the Al-Zabo in Castle of the Otter, which you can get most easily in the Castle of Days collection. It doesn't exactly match any accounts that I have been able to find on the subject. Now, I think it is relevant right now to stipulate that El Zabo is Arabic or Aramaic for hyena. So, Mantis says, in Irwin's Arabian Nights, this quote, according to the 19th century desert explorer Charles Doughty, ghouls lured travelers from their paths by calling to them in the voice of their mother or sister. With further research, it looks like this is about the monster Gruel, G-H-R-U-L, in Doughty's Travels in Arabia Deserta, Volume 1, Chapter 3. This is the ghoul that it is a djinn and looks like an ostrich. You know, that one. <laughs> and I actually am familiar with that one, and I'm pretty sure it will never make it into a horror movie. But that <laughs> actually is pretty close to Wolf's account. Maybe that's what he was referring to. Thanks, Mantis. That's cool. And by the way, we should say, too, just because we found out that not everybody knows that when we say Mantis, that that means Michael Andre Driussi. Oh, yeah, yeah. That came up. Everyone says, why do you call him Mantis? Right. Yeah. And that's because that's his uh, that's that's the long son name that he 
that he picked for yep. himself. And yep. so way back on the earth list, everybody was having fun using names for themselves. And, and I'll admit Mantis is just nicely shorter than Michael Andre Driussi. So yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. That's it, kind it, of why we always, that's probably that. why it's, it's the one that, that uh, lasted forever more than everybody else's. So yeah. Yeah. I, I think if we ever get to the book of the long sun, we'll, we'll have all of the commenters uh, pick long sun names for themselves. You keep the crooks and charlatans and business babe. Could you appreciate your We are, as always, very grateful to all the patrons for making all of this possible. And also, as always, we want to thank our new patrons this time. We have three new Journeyman patrons, John Lucadellis, Joshua Kay, and Aaron. Thank you guys so much. You get access to everything up on the Patreon site. And then if you want a little more, including a little clip after your name and occasional stickers and other goodies, we have the Master Patrons. We have three new guys this time. So welcome, Gareth Bromson Cluden. Mark Cummings. But I think it's coming soon. And Austin Simpson. I bet Amy's back in Austin. And for all of our patrons, I want to say I know this last month we haven't put anything really new up there. That will be changing soon. We are getting back to Borges and gonna get some good extra episodes up there coming very shortly. All right. Well, shall we get on to the play? Finally finish this thing? Finally, 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 and never look back. Yeah. Here we are at Dr. Talis's play, part five for us. <laughs> I don't know what the actual parts would be, but we're going to try and get through everything. Yes. Time. Finally at last. Yeah. So um, among other things, when we left the last act, the demons, <laughs> or Jules, I say, had helped the autarch Imar. I say, to beat back an assault for the Autark by Nod. And uh, the Autark sent the captured Jahi to the Inquisitor. And this new act it opens on the Inquisitor, who you'd think would be played by Severian, but is actually Talos and his familiar, who is evidently played by Severian, because he's the one turning the wheel in the end. Okay, so full disclosure, we lost the very first part of this. Yeah, so we're just recording real quick enough of the plot to get us back up to speed, but you didn't miss too much. Yeah, uh, we have to replace the first 10 minutes or so. Uh, it's just me and Craig, so just pretend Mark didn't have anything to say about this part, <laughs> implausibly. So let's get started. Act four. Okay, so we begin with a little stage direction. It says, when the lights go up again, the Inquisitor sits at a high desk in the center of the stage. His familiar, dressed as a torturer and mask, stands beside the desk. To either side are various instruments of torment. Hmm. The Inquisitor says, bring in the woman said to be a witch, brother. And I'll be the familiar. The Contessa waits outside, and as she is of exalted blood and a favorite of our sovereigns, I beg you see her first. And then the Contessa enters. And... She says, I heard what was said, and as I could not think you would be deaf, Inquisitor, to such an appeal, I have made bold to come in at once. Do you think me bold for that? You toy with words, but yes, I own I do. She toys with words. 
the, you know, this emphasis on the word bold, which strikes me as undue for the context, makes me suspicious. But, you know, a search for the use of the word in this book did not yield anything that leapt out to mean anything special. Uh, it's a word that Wolf uses a lot. Uh, the etymology of the word wasn't fruitful either. Yeah, the only thing I can think is that Contessa was always kind of bold. In the past, she was arrogant, right? She yeah. was sort of filled up, and now she has this sort of religious fervor. So, but that toy with words, like it's a some sort of a pun. Yeah, and I don't know if it's just the question that she says. You know, do you think me bold that I've made bold to come in at once? Do you think me bold? Oh, like, maybe. The, yeah, maybe that's all. And that, maybe because she's supposed to be scared of the Inquisitor, but yeah. she's not. And she or, or I made bold, and do, am I really bold? Okay, maybe, maybe that's it's no yeah. more than that. So, I can't think of anything yeah. it could be. So he says, "Yes, I own a do," and then she says, "But then you think wrongly. Eight years since my girlhood have I abode in this house absolute." When first the blood seeped from out my loins and my mother brought me here, she warned me never to come near these apartments of yours, where the blood has trickled from so many, caring nothing for the phases of the fickle moon. And never have I come till now, and now trembling. You know, it's interesting. that Shouldn't the Inquisitor be at the Citadel instead of House Absolute? Uh, I guess if it's if we're being absolutely accurate, but here it's sort of like the House Absolute in the play is just yeah. the yeah, government, right? right? We so, are here in uh, House Absolute. Yeah. That's where the play is, yeah. Right. So here, though, the, the talk about blood is interesting because for her, the blood that seeps out of her is a natural process. It's cyclical, and it has to do with reproduction, which, we, right. you know, that's what everything in the play is about in one way or another. Um, but then she's saying that what happens here is unnatural, that the Blood is trickled for so many, caring nothing for the phases of the of the moon. Right, yeah. But then she calls the moon fickle too, which would make it seem like it's not the phases regular. of the fickle moon. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's kind of weird. But still, the whole thing is set up here as if this place is, I think, sort of opposed to to natural bloodletting. Um, the other thing about it too is that it does remind me of both how Thecla and Domnina talk about Father Aniri's rooms. That is an excellent. That is an excellent tie. Uh, the Inquisitor. Uh, yeah. That's a good point. Now, there you go. We're, she's saying that we're here in a house absolute. Maybe the Inquisitor is Aniri. Aniri. Right. That that makes me wonder, like, is that he's supposed to be that kind of figure? If so, he's kind of dense and he just goes away after a little <laughs> while. So he's. Well, that's kind of the way Aniri is. He just kind of wanders away, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's just an odd moment there. Yeah. Yeah. So the Inquisitor says, here the good need have no fear. Yet even so, I think you grown bold by your own testimony. And so should she have, she's like, am, and am I good? Are you, in other words, should I have fear? Am I good? Am I good? Are you? Is he? My confessor would tell you I'm not. What does yours tell you? Or is he in fear? And is your familiar a better man than you? And the familiar says, I would not wish to be. <laughs> Back and forth about, you know, who's natural who's actually good who's right it's yeah as if you know the tortures are they good is she good for yeah. now being a, a person nobody's really exactly sure what their role is it seems and, like. and then if you take this back to uh you know the the tower then the familiar would be an analogous to an apprentice which makes sense that it is severian who is the familiar and yeah tell us who's the inquisitor right yep yep so, but then Contessa says, no, I'm not bold, nor safe here, as I know. It is fear that drives me to these grim chambers. They've told you of the naked man who struck me. Has he been taken? Uh, yes, yeah, she's talking about Meshia, the first man, also played by Severian. And the Inquisitor says, 
He has not been brought before me. So she says, Scarcely a watch ago, some soldiers found me moaning in the garden where my maid sought to comfort me. Because I feared to be outside by dark, they carried me to my own suite by way of that gallery called the Road of Air. Do you know it? Yeah, yes. Uh, scarcely an hour ago, a little more than an hour or an hour and a half. Um, Road of Air is, uh, yeah, that's one of the few terms that is in this play that it's very obvious what we're talking about. And the Inquisitor says, uh, yeah, I know it well. I know it well. And the Contessa says, then you know, too, that it is everywhere overhung with windows so that all the chambers and corridors that abut on it may receive the benefit. As we passed by, I saw in one the figure of a man, tall and clean-limbed, wide of shoulder and slender of waist. And the Inquisitor says, there are many such men. <laughs> yeah, and she's talking to the Inquisitor, played by Talos. She's talking about an event that's going to be explicitly detailed in Earth of the New Sun, where Severian looks down on a woman in the path of air, weeping, and the Inquisitor slash Severian answers, there are many such men. And it appears to me, even at this early point, whatever we're going to draw from this story by the Contessa, that man is supposed to be Severian. Why Why wouldn't we read from that section of Earth and New Sun again, chapter 41? I want to set this reading up to note that Severian has just passed a memorial that says, To honor of Severian the Great, Autarch of our Commonwealth, by right, the first man of Earth. Memorabilis. <laughs> I will never get that one right. Memorabilis. Let us remember him. There's so much about this section, about this whole chapter that, you know, that throws me. I, I'm inclined to pause this whole discussion and just stop and do an episode on that chapter, and I'm not going to suggest that. It's not practical, I know. You know, you're just going to have to wait until we do a, a proper episode on chapter 41. But <laughs> it makes me wonder why Severian is by right the first man of Earth. The Skians, you know, might disagree after all. Uh, there are, I suppose, many nations all over the earth, not ruled by Severian the Great. Is Severian supposed to be, you know, is he supposed to father actual children in Ushis after the last chapter of Earth of the New Sun? I don't know. But I don't think we can cover this portion of the play without addressing this passage in the chapter. So why don't we read it? Okay, so this is from Earth of the New Sun, chapter 41. He says, Severian says, I ran by many strange doors without opening any, knowing that all would lead from the secret house to the house absolute by one means or another. At last I came to an aperture closed by no door. A strong draft from it carried the sound of a woman's weeping, and I halted and stepped through. I found myself in a loggia with arches on three sides. The woman's sobs seemed to come from my left. I went to one of the arches and peered out. It overlooked that wide and windy, or we could, windy, yeah, the gallery we call the Path of Air. The loggia was one of those constructions that appear merely ornamental, though they serve the needs of the secret house. Shadows on the marble floor far below me showed that the woman was ringed by half a dozen scarcely visible Praetorians, one of whom supported her by the elbow. At first, I couldn't see her eyes, which were bent toward the floor and lost in her raven-dark hair. Then, I cannot tell by what chance, she glanced up at me. Hers was a lovely face of that complexion called olive, and as smoothly oval as an olive too, with something in it that tore my heart. And though it was strange to me, I had the sensation of return once again. 
I felt that in some lost life I had stood just where I was standing then, and that in that life I had seen her beneath me in just that way. She and the shadows of the Praetorians were soon almost out of sight. I shifted from one arch to the next to keep them in view, and she stared back at me until she was looking over the shoulder of her pale gown when I last glimpsed her. She was as lovely and as unknown at that final glimpse as at the first. Her beauty was reason enough for any man to stare at her, but why did she stare at me? If I had understood her expression at all, it had been one of mingled hope and fear, and perhaps she too had some sense of a drama being played upon a second occasion. So that little thing there about him uh, looking through the different arches, it's like he's moving through, but the Contessa in a second is going to say that she thinks she saw different men who looked the same. So right, we, yeah. we kind of, we, it's definitely, I mean, when Wolf wrote Earth, he definitely went back to this section of the play and was like, yeah, I'm going and, to write and, a scene and like cleared that. It, yeah, wrote it down exactly what he had in mind for this event. Even though it doesn't really help, I mean, other than to say, okay, listen, people, it should have been obvious Meshia was Severian. So here's the woman and she sees Severian, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll see. But that definitely that's that's what she does. But we do see it from two different perspectives, like the way Severian describes it and then the way the Contessa is going to describe it. Right. Is different. Yes. And now we're back to what we actually recorded originally with Mark. Greg, you're the Contessa. All right. So I thought, but in a little time, the same figure appeared in another window and another. Then I appealed to the soldiers who carried me to fire upon it. They thought me mad and would not, but the party they sent to take that man returned with empty hands. Still, he looked at me through the windows and appeared to sway. Inquisitor says, And you believe this man you saw to be the man who struck you? Worse. I fear it was not he, though it resembled him. Besides, he would be kind to me, I'm sure, if only I treated his madness with respect. No, on this strange night, when we who are the winter-killed stalks of man's old sprouting find ourselves so mixed with next year's seeds, I fear that he is something more we do not know. Inquisitor says, That may be so, but you will not find him here, nor the man who struck you. So it is kind of cool that the way she describes it. You know, he could be epitome of earth right he is something he's like the end which the end of something kind of pointing to beyond but he isn't necessarily all the way the the new man of usha so i mean kind of the way she describes that yeah. there's and the way she describes humanity right the winter yep. killed stocks of man's old sprouting so yeah. mixed with next year's seed yeah. you know that new thing that's coming explicitly green man kind of imagery mm -hmm. as well Yep. kind of casting it backwards onto the old races. Um, but the way that he like seems to appear in different places, it kind of reminds me of the scene in Earth of the New Sun where Severian is in the inn and he thinks he sees himself in various places in the crowd looking at him. Yeah, yeah. You know, like mm -hmm. as if like he's cast adrift on time there somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, I mean, being the dude who has memories of everybody around, right? I mean, there's, that kind of makes sense too, especially if you add in the, the possible cyclical nature of everything, then maybe, yeah, Severian is kind of remembering all kinds of different versions of history or something. So what do you guys think, if we agree that this woman on the path of air in Earth and New Sun is this uh, Contessa at this point, what do we make of her saying that the man she saw, she is the one who struck her? It, she's phrased not him. Yes, yeah, she's she afraid. She's a, well, she believes it's him and she's afraid it might not be him. Yeah. She wants it to be him, but there is that there is that declaration that he has struck her. Right. And if you had that struck, I mean, honest, the first thing, of course, that I think 
is there's like the one time we have a, a dude striking a woman is at least the ceremonial striking off of the maid's head. In right. The yes, ceremony. but also this is a little symbolic too. Like oh, yeah, the old, yeah, yeah. She's the old winter-killed stalks of man sprouting, you know, the feminine there that wants to survive. And the first man kind of rejects her with that strike. He's like, I'm going to strike you down. Almost like, you know, I mean, this is a little bit far, but like um, Adam and Eve kind of striking at the head of the serpent, you know, like it's like, oh, get away from me at this particular point. We'll curse you. So, I mean, I think that there's there's something there that's a little more biblical, that's a little more symbolic. Mm. There's not necessarily and, that serpentine, you know, stomping on the serpent's head. Right, right, But right. there's something about the strike there that repudiates her. And then she's like, this new thing that's coming, I don't think he does repudiate me. He's not exactly the same. And what is Severian? He is a memorial of all that Earth was, right? That's what he's supposed to be. That's what the memories are for. So that humanity, even though it's dead, it won't truly die as long as some of that lives on in him. He's like the most convenient repository for all of what humanity was. Hmm. And so, you know, him showing up there, something something new, something we haven't thought of, but they don't even know what else could be. Yeah. That could be. And then, I mean, too, because remember the Contessa, when she first appears, she's totally arrogant and like thinks nothing of any of this stuff and feels like she's the most important thing around. So there is something of that that, you know, she's rejected in a certain sense All right. by Meshia. Yeah. That could be. Yeah. yeah, I like that. And I think actually I, I can't work it all out right now, but even if she also is the maid, there is something there. There's well, a way she has to a maid. Well, yeah, yeah, that is true. She does have me. I mean, the maid who gets like yeah, I know. Severian's I know. mom and whatnot. But, but there is a way that Severian's mother is, in some ways, his literal mother is not as important as what becomes of other things after him. So it's almost like giving up your mother and and moving beyond her. There's something in that that Severian's supposed to do. Like it's it's actually in, in an odd way, it's a good thing that he doesn't know his mother wasn't limited by her, so that he could become this other thing, um, which is weird. But I, I don't know. There's I feel like there is something appropriate to that yeah. as well, even if she is supposed to also kind of be a metaphor for the for his mother. So, so before we let this uh, moment go with the path of air, how about some curiositas earthi? Curiositas Earthus. Uh, this one is from Robert Borsky, uh, Earthless, 1998. He first cites the lexicon Earthus, the entry for Catherine, that she was, quote, probably a pelerine who ran away from the order of, quote, professional virgins, as Agia called it. And maybe she ran away because she had sex with Owen and became pregnant. Lexicon Earthus says, quote, she was probably arrested not for any crime, but for the unknown uh, Severian's protection. And Borsky says, as for the woman Severian sees under arrest in the path of air by the Praetorians on his return to house absolute, this is the original Catherine, the patron saint of the torturers, recalled to, or perhaps revivified, like the assassin in the secret passageway, by the long-dead Magzentius, who is present in Severian like all the other autarchs. In many ways, it's a completion of a cycle. I also believe, uh, Borsky says, it's possible for us to posit Catherine may have been involved in a plot to assassinate Maxentius, a crime for which she'll be beheaded first figuratively and then ritually for centuries to come. 
so my issue with that is that there's no textual evidence of, of that at all. We have a backstory for the Contessa in um, the play here that doesn't jive with that in any way, shape, or form. But the two events are identical where she looks at, you know, at the, the figure there and then where she looks and sees Severian in Earth of the New Sun. They're pretty much identical scenes. So I don't see any reason to think that this is canonical or textual or anything. Mark, I think that I think that accusing Borsky of not having textual evidence is just rude. <laughs> it's I mean, totally missing you, the don't point. You understand how he works, <laughs> but but no. The one thing that is interesting though is that that the different men that she sees, like the the guy over and over again, that I, I didn't even think about the autarchs, um, but that's a yes. Yeah, yeah and Severian has all those people inside him. Yep, yep, yep. And he is the epitome of Earth that's going to be left behind. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's do another one. Uh, Earth Lister Lee Berman's theory. Uh, builds on John Clute's speculation. John Clute, as I've said before, is the reviewer who first said, I believe, that the Book of the New Sun could not be read but only reread. And he's also the editor of the Science Fiction Encyclopedia. So Clute was the first to note that the maid who plays Holy Catherine for the torturers had a face, Severian calls, quote, like a pool of still water. And what does a pool of still water look like if not a mirror? And this maid, of course, has a oval face, as he pointed out, in the Citadel of the Autark. And Severian meets the Pellerine, Mania, who also has an oval face. And the Damacella of the Cathedral of the Claw had an oval face. And Syriaca, a former Pellerine, had an oval face. He sees this as a confirmation that Severian's mother was a Pellerine. But then, of course, Jolinta also has an oval face. And so did some kybits in Thecla's memory in Sword of the Lictor, as well as Chatelaine Barbia's kybit at the House Azure. Perhaps the oval face just means something different than what Lee thinks, or maybe he's identified something important. But unless the woman in the path of air is the maid, then we don't have any confirmation that the maid's face was oval. But some mysteries in a wolf story are resolved that way. You, you accept the premise and then you discover it works. And Lee says, Severian sees his mother's face in many places throughout the story. There is the oval face and also an olive skin complexion. There's a pale gown to look for. The woman in the path of air has a face that Severian says, quote, had something in it that tore my heart. He says the same of Valeria in the Citadel of the Autark, quote, there was something in Valeria's face that tore my heart out. Uh, that's very appealing. How Valeria can be in the maid, who's potentially Severian's mother, is not clear. But I think that there's something in Valeria, in, like I said, in Odillo. So that's hardly insuperable. Now, I, I really think you should uh, stop with this Valeria Odillo stuff. James. I will not stop. I will okay, not stop. So you sit, sit down for now. Okay, Mark. so there's something else. That, that goes back to like that goes back to like our our fifth episode. You you said um, that Lee says Severian sees his mother's face in many places throughout the story. The oval face, olive skin, pale gown. What does that originate from? That's explicitly linked to the mother. Is there an image of her with an oval face, olive skin, and a pale gown, or is he just saying? Oh, here's a bunch of images of that. Well, he's building he's building it on the extrapolation that uh, Severian's mother was a pelerine, a runaway pelerine. But I mean, how do you know she had a pale gown? Well, how do we know many things, Mark? <laughs> well, you know, Wolf but, um, actually usually says stuff. It's just people um, read them metaphorically. I'm trying to remember. 
if does does Severian say that is he has vague memories of his mother, but there but there's also the thing that that comes up multiple times where that sort of oval face and that thing that strikes me in the heart is always things that are associated with something that could be his mother. Um, like I do think at the very least there's it's repeated in a few places enough times and with the suggestion like i think ah crap i gotta go look but i think there's even one place where he's like i don't know if this is a memory of my mother but i do have this feeling of this oval face with an olive color that that kind of clutches at my heart so but no so there's never i don't think there's a place where he specifically says this is my mom but it is implied enough to be a problem (laughs) well yeah there's i mean it, even if one says, well, she's not literally his mother, it could still be a signifier of some type of motherhood. And this is a total left field. But one thing that happened after our, our meeting was, I, or after our little Shadow of the Con thing was stuff about Wolf's mom, most mother came up so many times mm-hmm. that it's, I don't know, there's, and I, I don't know enough about his actual experiences and i certainly don't know enough about psychoanalytic theory but there there's something well when we finish this when we do the summary of this book i'm going to make a very strong appeal that his mother is very very central to this book and intentionally so and wolf wasn't even shy about it well his early his earliest memory um in in the short story on the train you know there's he, he says it's like the whole life of a person passing on this train there and he says his earliest memory was of his mother and he was on a train and he saw her giant face looming over him and so mm-hmm. these big women that appear i do think there is a linkage to the, to the mother there that is kind of yeah. interesting from a psychological standpoint well one thing i will say is that severian says shortly after quote every league that separated me from dorcas tore my heart uh, so, you know, it could be argued that this is just something Severian says, or it could be a sign of a family member. I mean, I don't know. Uh, Lee's opinion about the maid who is on the path of air, who he says is Severian's mother, is intriguingly close to my own. And he thinks she's been, quote, cloned and killed many times. She's the maid who performs uh, for the torturers each year. She's the corpse that Severian sees in chapter one being exhumed by Bodilus and Hildegrin and Thea for consumption. She's the woman, Contessa Carina version of Catherine, that Severian sees on the path of air. And, quote, keeping with the Oedipal theme, her clone could also be two women that Severian has sex with, women with the oval face, dark hair, and or, which tear at Severian's heart, Syriaca and Valeria. So one of the things I don't like is forcing that opening woman in the tomb to be Severian's mother. The resurrection and rebirth, I mean, they are very baptismal and womb-like in those first few chapters with the water and Juturna and her giant hand and face. But I mean, actually making that exhumed woman uh, who has family that's looking out for her maybe it's all just a bit much for me i don't like collapsing the characters into one another without a very good overarching reason and so like you know why why clones that are just dying like what's the point what does it add to the the theme of the book or like who would put up that process in place that it has to be the same person being cloned put to death like that um, rather than some other relationship there you know it just seems like what's the motive for that well, this is this is a society that, that um, obviously, uh, for which cloning is key. It's key for the nobility. It's key uh, for for whatever it purposes it is for for, for extending the life of of the exultants. Um, it is a it it's not it's not an issue of necessity. It's an issue of a type of Chekhov's gun. 
Could be. I one thing I do like. I still don't think that the the corpse was his mother necessarily, but I do like the fact that there are the things there that to Severian it sticks out. It's important because there are things that he feels consciously or not are connected to his mother and and that and that I like. I mean that that just seems really cool on most part. It could just be totally something else, but that Severian perceives it just gives it much more of a kind of meaning and a sort of suggestiveness that make that whole moment way more important to him. But, but yeah, but yeah, as far as exactly, I'm, I'm still kind of with Mark as far as like, if that really was the case in some ways, it's almost, yeah, it's just, it's kind of cool, I guess that there would be this cloned thing that just mm -hmm. gets, I mean, that's a cool idea, but I don't, it's, it seems like it's more powerful if it's, Severian kind of suggesting that idea because he's got some deep awareness of his mother's meaning for him rather than it being the literal. literal. Well, I, anyway. I'm not, I'm not sold on it, but not necessarily because uh, I disparage its merits as so much as I think that I have a better solution anyway. So, which isn't, which isn't fair for Lee. Lee put it up because it sounded good to him. So the inquisitor says to his familiar, Bring in the witch woman, brother. Such are they all, though some are worse than others. The familiar exits and returns, leading Messian by a chain. I note the familiar's misogyny, which buttresses the accusation that misogyny is at the core of this book. And well, there's a little more than misogyny at the core. There's that pregnant, gravid imagery that we see in Earth of the New Sun that is renewal. And so even Dorcas, you know, that grandmother figure that's kind of rotted away and faded, there's a lot of that familial line. I don't think it's necessarily misogyny, even though, yeah, there there is the sense that if you call every single woman a witch, some are worse than others, I guess you, you could make the claim, I guess. But there's all, but yeah, there is the sense of there's a power to it too. And, and yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and also I, I think there's an argument that the familiar statement is not merely hostility to women, but a hint at a literal meaning. Well, yeah. Bringing life is magic. Mm-hmm. When the Inquisitor says to bring the witch woman, the familiar brings not Jahi, as a first-time reader would expect, but Meshian. And the familiar makes a kind of justification for this in that whether it is Meshian or Jahi or the Contessa, they're all really the same. And I can piece some meaning in this from my false Thecla theory. I, as always, I expect the familiar to be someone in this story. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's like a, a joke, but it's also... Like because you have sort of the the difference between them is like two different kinds of generation, right? Like it's yeah, sort yeah. of the the destiny of the race. Um, yeah, it's it is. I think yeah, a bit of it's it's supposed to be misogynistic here because he doesn't get it, right? Right. He doesn't yeah. understand. Yeah. Look who's talking. Yeah. Yeah. So the Inquisitor says, "It is alleged against you that you so charmed seven of the soldiers of our sovereign." the autark that they betrayed their oath and turned their weapons upon their comrades and their officers. The inquisitor rises and lights a large candle at one side of his desk. Uh, so do you guys have any interpretation of the large candle at his desk? Uh, I don't see anything as direct as I want it to be. I, I suppose it could be a you know, new sun, uh, but I think Severian should be adjusting it in that case. That's uh, tenuous, but I, I consider 
all the allegory, let alone the metaphor in this play, to be tenuous, with the exception of the two demons and the temple of the north under the hill. Hold on just a minute. If we're talking about the trial, right, where the sailors will fight against those Eidolons in Severian's mind, and then, you know, Mm -hmm. um, the people loyal to the Commonwealth will suddenly be fighting for it, but against it at the same time when they turn against the new son, Mm -hmm. uh, who is their their leader, more or less, right? The number seven is the interesting part there to me. Seven of the soldiers of our sovereign, that kind of alliteration right there. Um, now, I do think that the candle on the desk is resonant with that trial as well, because it's not Severian who's kindling, I mean, directly kindling it. You know, Zadkiel is kind of like a, a master, especially orchestrating the trial there where he seems to stand in for his place. But really, the actual trial is when the people fight for him, uh, his enemies, right, because he treated mm-hmm. them justly. And that's supposedly the real trial. So I think this could kind of resonate with the trial a little bit. Cool. I also like that if there's a candle, it's like a, it's a very small light in the yeah. middle of a huge dark place. And yeah. So. Okay. So the Inquisitor says, um, I now most summonly adjure you to confess this sin. And if you have so sinned, what power aided you to accomplish it? And the names of those who taught you to call upon that power. Messian, the soldiers only saw I meant no harm and were afraid of me. I Silence. That's a familiar, yeah. The Inquisitor says, No weight is given to the protestations of the accused unless they are made under duress. My familiar will prepare you. And this is some yeah. uh, dark humor, I suppose. Yeah, so sort right. of like, yeah. You, you will only speak the truth when you're being tortured, but yeah. But also it gets, like we mentioned before, it's trial language here. So, so he's kind of... It's not just that he's trying to force her to to confess, but there is something, a bit of a trial here going on. But, but I also want to note that these crimes are never detailed in the play. Uh, this leaves open the possibility, in the way that I'm not inclined to interpret this play, that Messian earlier in the play is not Messian here, or not exactly. Interesting. I think it's interesting that the they there's sort of no distinction between Jahi and Messian as far as what they did. And yeah. how they sort of corrupt. Well, is there a sense in which they that that is that whoever these people are that that is true for both of them, or that they are in some sense the same person? Yes, when it comes to divine cosmic justice that's greater than the individuals and their ambitions, then it's all going to eventually serve a greater will. And so uh, I think this slippery allegory that you notice here, and you'll see some images where like, um, you know, enemies are walking together, right? And I think this this is all they're all rendered equal in the torturer chamber. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. So, so the familiar seizes Messian and straps her into one of the contrivances. Contessa, with so little time left to the world, I shall not waste it in watching this. Are you a friend of the naked man of the garden? I'm going to seek him, and I will tell him what has become of you. And then Messian says, Oh, do, I hope that he will come before it is too late. And the Contessa, and I hope he will accept me in your stead, no doubt. Both hopes are equally forlorn, and we shall soon be sisters in despair. And the Contessa leaves. So this is the this just a tiny plot point. Like, did the Contessa not see that Messian was with <laughs> Messia before? I don't know. I mean, um, but she maybe they were just so beneath her at that point that she wasn't paying attention. But, this is a, this is a um, strong suggestion that maybe these aren't the same people at this point that they were before. Um, I'm going to kind of argue. I. I, I, I all of my little radars are picking up that Messian is Thecla. And if uh, 
if that's true, then the Contessa being uh, Severian's mother, then to say that they will be sisters in despair suggests that, you know, they're both going to be executed at the tower. Hmm. Well, you know, I don't agree with you, but I um, know that, but you know, <laughs> you run with it. Why not? Why not? <laughs> but I think the thing there too, about the Contessa saying, Oh, if he can't have you, hopefully he'll, you know, mate with me in your stead or something like there's something there about the Contessa having now agreed that Meshia is foretelling something about the future and she wants to be part of it. Um, I mean, I guess she's not really in a position to help free Meshian or, or speak for her or something. Right. It just says, I hope you will accept me in your stead because you're doomed now. And um, I, I mean, when's the last time you freed a prisoner from a prison? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Well, I'm not on. saying like, she like, should be. People like, expect Severian to do all these things. And they're like, oh, what a what a guy. He just gave her a knife. But I mean, no, nobody oh, yeah. can really break somebody out of a you know place where they're fully incarcerated with all the guards yeah. without super abilities or a plan. Well, right? so, so they did sneak a dog well, in yeah, and out yeah, of, yeah. of the but, tower. He probably yeah. could have done it. But so, it would have meant, meant literally betraying his family and possibly, yeah, killing his friends. So, but I think in the end, I think it's still the, it just, it's reinforcing the thing that, that there must, there will be mating and generation that is the whole outcome of this in the end. Yeah. Well, the Contessa has now exited the play and in support of my current interpretation of these events, I'll note that the maid and Thecla's presence at the tower do overlap and the maid exits the story just before Thecla's excruciation. And the Inquisitor says... I go to, to speak to those that were her rescuers. Prepare the subject for I shall return shortly. And he's referring to Contessa's rescuers, right? Yep. And the familiar says, there is another inquisitor of similar crimes, but less perhaps in potency. Why do you not tell me? I might have instructed both together. Bring her in. And then the familiar exits and returns with Jai. The inquisitor searches among the papers on his desk. This is interesting. Whoever Jahi is supposed to be here or elsewhere, her crimes are considered less of a big deal than Messian's. And this is, of course, contrary to the expectation of a careful first-time reader, of which, frankly, I doubt there are many. It is also contrary to my expectations. It's ironic, and and maybe we'll finally put a person to Jahi. Right, but it's also weird, too, like... If um, like the whole first part of the play is setting up that Jahi is obviously the deceiver and Meshia and Meshian are like Meshia is like, could I be with her? I don't know. Is it going to hurt Meshian? But Meshian is sort of so clearly presented as someone who's more virtuous and, and not trying to deceive anyone and just wants to carry out this plan that it's a weird moment here that. I guess not weird, because I guess the point is that nobody else really knows who to follow or their faith is so easily lost or they're easily deceived or something. And I mean, you know, if if they reflect it all on past figures, mankind is culpable for so many things that it hasn't taken like the, the fall for really. Uh, mm. And and so like Jaterna and the Undines, you know, they seem to be these figures of great evil or sinister intent. But really, when you get back down to it, they're they're not quite as bad as they seem to be. They're mm-hmm. just monstrous in nature. Yeah. So, you know, first they seem to be one way, but then in, in the final analysis, they're really not any worse than, say, a, a human being that has committed some atrocities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. We're, you know, we're going to get some um, instruction about Jahi later in this play. So that, that might undercut that. We'll just have to see. 
So the Inquisitor says, it is alleged against you that you so charmed seven of the soldiers of our sovereign, the Autarch, that they betrayed their oath and turned their weapons upon their comrades and their officers. I now most solemnly adjure you to confess this sin. And if you have so sinned, what power aided you to accomplish it and the names of those who taught you to call upon that power? Right. And and as we said before, Jahi is accused of the exact same crimes as Meshian. Yeah. And one thing, too, is that what they're accused of is not killing the soldiers, but of turning them and making them fight against the Autark. So that's uh-huh. similar to what the Undines seem to be doing, right? Like they're right. they're trying to convert people to to come with them. And and it seems like that's what the Ashians are, too. And I he says seven and not 17, but I don't know if that was sort of a, a nod to that the Ashians or, or whoever has been corrupted by these two. But, but the weird thing is that Meshian says that she, she quote unquote charmed them, right? Like we're going to get to that in a second, but she also says, I didn't do it intentionally. I did it. They were like, she's like, I don't have the power. Um, whereas it's Jahi is the one who supposedly can do that or has some power like that. Right. So, but anyway, something about leading people to fight against their own kind is kind of the bigger thing. And, and remember the skill that the Undines have, right? She can lure men out there like Severian's kind of compelled at a certain point there. Mm-hmm. And she's going to come to help at the very end of Earth of the New Sun as well at the House Absolute there. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. she's going to show up. Yeah. So, so Jahi, let's see what she says. Okay. Jahi says, I've done all you accuse me of and more than you know. The power I dare not name lest this upholstered rat hole be blasted to bits. Who taught me? Who teaches a child to call upon her father? Her mother? I would not know. Prepare her. I shall return soon. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you take of that, Mark, about her? You just do it by your nature. Who teaches a child to call upon her father or mother? You just grew up that way. It's not conscious instruction. Um, but she says, yeah, I have these powers, mm-hmm. right? And so I don't want to name the powers I work for that'll, that'll destroy everything. But in a way, we're going to see that she walks with the Hyper Jewels as well, or the demons, uh, and that they all mm-hmm. kind of share the same ambition. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting, like, because they said she was sent to destroy the seed fallow in the field, but then she sought to mingle with it instead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the Inquisitor leaves and. Okay. And, um, Familiar says, um, her mother <laughs> and uh, the quizzer says, I would not know because remember the guild have no mothers to teach yep. them anything. Uh, he essentially says that it is in her nature, like you say. Uh, but here again, we have a reference to a daughter and a father. I, I kind of expected Mark for there to be a reference to undines as daughters of Abaya, but that is not the case. They are called the wives of Abaya, the whores of Abaya, not the daughters of Abaya. But in the tale of the boy called Frog, there's a reference to the sons of Meshia and the daughters of Meshian. And I want to reference something that is incredibly potent to me and maybe only to me. Meshia repeatedly refers to the Contessa as daughter. He doesn't call the Autark his son. There is to me a possibility that Severian, or perhaps only Imar, is the father of the original Thecla. I think there is something there. And if Jahi and Meshian and Contessa are in some way to be equated, then this statement by Jahi is meaningful of something. I don't understand how you're going back to Imar at all and making him a father. Well, I'm going to, well, we'll, we'll wait for that for in the summary, but you're, when I lay out exactly why you are so, so abysmally confused, uh but we'll get to that later. Uh, Meshian addresses the similar charges uh, between her and Jahi. She says, they fought for you too, 
How sad that so many had to die. And the familiar locks Jahi in a contrivance on the other side of the desk. The familiar says, he had your papers again. I'll point out his error to him diplomatically. You may be sure when he comes back. So the familiar refutes the claim that their crimes were the same, but I insist the confusion is meaningful as well as comedic. And Jahi says, you charm the soldiers, then charm this fool and free us, which implies that she doesn't have the power. To yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And then Meshi answers, I have no chant of power and I charmed but seven of 50. Uh, we don't know what a chant of power is. Uh, the audience uh, probably does. I suppose uh, here in here in the house, absolute. I suppose Meshian is simply saying that she can't take over the guards' minds. She can only charm them with her feminine and diplomatic wiles. Could be that. Could also be that if there's that she just appeals to their good nature, <laughs> you know. And some <laughs> people know who the right ones to fight for are, and right. some don't. I mean, at least that's. Yeah, she says there's no way I can do it intentionally, but some people still, you know, but she still, but she still charmed him. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. So anyway, Nod comes in. Nod bound, inner Nod bound, driven by the first soldier with Pike. Nod returns for the first time since the demons defeated him in the last act. But why he returns is a mystery to me, except that he needs to be here to go crazy at the end of the play. Uh, the first soldier here is Severian. The familiar says, um, what's this? Are, are you sure, though, that the first soldier is Severian because the familiar is Severian? Hmm. Oh, you're was, right. The first soldier would have to be Talos. He's gone. He's left. Yeah. And yeah, yeah OK. Gone. First soldier is Talos. So the familiar says, what's this? I, I'll be the first soldier. So why such a prisoner as you've never had before? He's killed 100 men as we might puppies. Have you shackles big enough for him? Filmier says, I'll have to link several pairs together, but I'll contrive something. I'll be Nod here. Okay. I'm no man, but less and more, being born of the clay of Mother Gaia, whose pets are the beasts. If your dominion is over men, then you must let me go. Uh, yeah, he's saying he's beyond the jurisdiction of the Autark and the Guild. And Jahi right. says, we're not men either. Let us go too. Ha <laughs> <laughs> funny, Jahi. First soldier laughs and says, we can see you're not. I wasn't in doubt for a moment. Remember, Jahi is being played by Jolenta. Meshi and she's no woman. Don't let her trick you. I don't know what that means. It must mean something. Well, I mean, she's like demonic. Yeah, she's, but and kind of like Nod, where they are, they're not, like all this stuff here is, they're all these jokes, but it's also about definitions of human and man and beast and demon and, and all those kinds of things that, like, you know, apparently by this, Baldander's isn't a man anymore. He's something else. He might have started that way, but, but, um, so the fact that Jahi is too kind of like Nod, that she's more something else than, than woman. So, mm -hmm. but the familiar snaps last fetter on Nod. Mayor says, she won't believe me. The time of tricks is over. First soldier, you'll have some fun, won't you, when I'm gone? He reaches for Jahi, who spits like a cat. <laughs> and the first soldier says, I don't suppose you'd be a good fellow and turn your back for a moment. Uh, this scene is creepy, given the chapter is just previous to this one. Yeah, yeah. And so the familiar is getting ready to torture Meshian. Yeah, she's being put on the rack or, or wheel. Yeah, we just know it's a contrivance. Yeah, yeah, because there's a windlass. It's like a crank he has to spin, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And the familiar says... If I were such a good fellow as that, I'd find myself broken on my own wheel soon enough. But if you wait here until my master, the Inquisitor, returns, you may find yourself lying beside her as you wish. Yeah, so this moment is a bit like 
the actual torturers that we see that they're this, you know, he's a torturer, he's cruel, but he's still following all the rules, right? It's, right. it's, it's a duty as messed up a duty as it is. It's still his duty. And he's not just into sort of random pain and punishment and rape and stuff like that. So, so yeah, first soldier hesitates, then realizes what he means and hurries out and nods says, that woman will be the mother of my son-in-law. Do not harm her. And then Nod strains at his chains. Okay, so, you know, I've been equating Meshian to Thecla, but if uh, the Megatherians ever sought to free her, it is never presented to us. And Thecla is certainly expected them to... Uh, and Thecla certainly expected them to through Vodalus or his followers, but it doesn't matter because Nod is never going to actually free her in this play. You know what, though? I think it does resonate a little bit with Thecla's incarceration because she has that uh, Kraken bracelet or whatever it is there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a couple things that, that do actually show her in league secondhand, very secondhand with the Megatherians, which yeah, I think is kind I, Well, of I'm not even sure. Well, I mean, I think she, yeah, I think she's a, I, I think she's a follower. She's not out in the fields, but she was definitely she it, she was not wrongly imprisoned as a spy for no definitely not and that's made clear i mean you know some people are like oh this is terrible but she is a traitress and that's the yeah. chapter title even yeah right okay so jahi stifling a yawn says i've been up all night and though the spirit is as willing as ever this flesh is ready for rest can't you hurry with her and get to me now the familiar says he's he's not even looking there's no rest here so well, it's not quite as homelike as I would expect. And Jahi yawns again, and when she moves a hand to cover her mouth, the shackle falls away. So strange. This whole scene, strange to me, as I flail for a literal interpretation. Yeah, well, I think, and part of it, too, is that she's, she works by different rules, right? Just like the, um, it's almost this thing of what the humans are doing is on one level, going about their business, but, but Jahi, just like the Megatherians, they're playing a much bigger game. And right. so, uh, but plus two, the size thing is going to become an issue here. Um, and you know, it's kind of like another fun nod to, you know, you could try to put a cuff on a giant underwater creature, but you're going to have to have more than traditional means to actually fight yeah, them but, and do something with them. So. Yeah. But still, I mean, even if we do apply that interpretation, there's no evidence that anyone has ever tried. Right. Well, okay. This is the thing that at the very end, she pretty much is bound by Severian when he says, you will save me. And she's like, oh no, I didn't know that I would, but now that you've said it, I will like at earth of the new sun. Mm -hmm. So there's like, there's like a binding towards the will of uh, the new sun coming and and actually serving it in that, uh, that I think, but you know, I don't want to confuse this too much. Basically, they're being tortured here, and she's freed herself with her powers. Yep. Okay. Yep. So Meshian says, "You have to hold her, don't you understand? The soil has no part in her, so iron has no power over her." So the familiar, still looking at Meshian, whom he is torturing, he says, uh, "She's held. Never fear." Meshian, giant, can you free yourself? The world depends on it. And then Nod strains at his bonds, but can't break them. Um, but I want to go back to that that point about. The, the thing that the soil has no partner, so iron mm-hmm. has no power over it, that there's something about her not being quite natural, right? That, right. That there's some, so Nod is is going to be thoroughly natural, like he even says he's the, the son of Gaia. So he right. is thoroughly natural because he is the son of, of Gia or Gaia or a child or something like that. Uh, but, and also the thing about iron here, it, it says iron has no power over 
like the old fairy lore. I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's, we're getting the opposite. That's the opposite. It's it's the opposite, but it definitely calls it up, right? Like there's, Mm -hmm. if there's something and you know, you can, people think about fairies in different ways. Like for some people, fairies are more natural, right? Like they are the true sort of Mm -hmm. earth spirit. Elementals. Right. 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 Whereas then the things that are, um, you know, actually human and, and Christian are not, (laughs) you know, they're, they're, they're higher. So, um, but you can, by calling her into this, like the, the fact that iron has no power over, there's the other sense in which fairies are of a completely otherworldly thing, right? Like how you take the, the connections here kind of depends on which sort of general mythology you're thinking about. Um, like for some, it's uh, from a very Christian point of view, the fairies are very kind of dangerous because they don't they're not part of the, the sort of whole economy of salvation <laughs> and all that yeah. kind of thing. Um, and so she seems like she's kind of out of it, like in that sense of fairy. Um, but also she breaks rules, which is the other part of fairy. So, I mean, I don't want to necessarily say that, you know, okay, ah, Jahi is a fairy and, you know, or Nod is a fairy or something like that. I don't think it's that, but by, by bringing this up, there's definitely something about things being natural and unnatural that I feel like Wolf is alluding to with the iron thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, Craig, I, I think you bring up something that's kind of uh, interesting, and it is a kink in the theory that Jahi is Jaterna, because as you point out, Jahi and Nod are very different creatures. Or was that Mark? I can't remember. Um, I I think they're different. I think they're coming from different sides. They might Bald be. Baldanders is a man who's made himself into them. Like, yeah, we're not as Baldanders. I mean, he plays the role of Nod at the end of Earth of the New Sun. Is clearly Baldanders here. This is Baldanders helping the New Sun come. Yeah, but Jahi is not preventing it. There's nothing in, in at the end of Earth where Jahi where Jaterna is preventing the New Sun. She's come to help them too. She's like, I've come to help humanity. Yeah, she switches. I feel like there's there's a sense in which something about Jaterna and something about at least Jaterna, if not all of the Megatherians, switches sides. And um, at the cost of her own life, because yeah, she's yeah. falling apart at the end. Yeah. There. And there is even that line in the play where it's like she was sent here to do one thing, but she's kind of she got confused. And that's that's totally the motivation of Jaterna. Like that mm-hmm. is it right there. It's encapsulated in that line. She was well, yeah, but the play doesn't. The play certainly doesn't end that way. It doesn't end with Jahi on the side of the new sun. Uh, it 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 depends on Nod getting her. Yeah, the trick too is that the play doesn't really end. <laughs> We're getting ahead of ourselves. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's continue. Okay, all right. All right. So, what is the threat of Jahi then? Uh, it does not seem to be the threat of the Megatherians. Uh, are the witches players in all this? What is the? Do you guys have any idea about where we're at? After the next line, I'll give it to you. Okay, sure. So Jahi walks out of her shackles. Yes, it is I who answer, because in the world of reality, I'm far larger than any of you. I'm going to repeat that, James. In the world of reality, I am far larger than any of you. And when she shows up at the end of Earth of the New Sun, she's way bigger than Bald Anders is. She's collapsing under her own weight. Like, this is Jaterna. Okay, I'll let you have that for now. Uh, I I have a different reading on it. I don't see, I'm going to be honest. I don't see Jaterna in any of this. In the world of reality, I'm far larger than any oh, of you. Well, it's interesting to hear now you've decided to go hyper literal with uh, with this one clause, but you never have this other time. The whole second half of the play, I've been hyper literal. Nod is Baldanders. Jahi is Jaterna. But right? Jahi isn't literally in this play doing anything that Jaterna does. Well, yes, I think she is. is, though. I think her whole, what Jahi is doing is trying to seduce Meshia, right? She's trying to seduce him so that 
the future of humanity. The people that he creates follows her future instead yes. of Messians, right? Yes. And that's what Abaya and the Megatherians in general are supposed to be doing too, right? That's why they want us to do Severian in order to, to get him on their side rather than to be the, the new son. So I, I do feel like Jahi, her point, like her existence in the play is to, she's trying to get away so she can go find Meshia and mate with him. And so the offspring of the new humanity that they talk about will be something that she's somehow corrupted. Like that's, that's what, that's what seems to me pretty clear. That's the goal. That's what Abaya, that's what the Megatherians seem to be trying to do too, to make humanity go in their direction to either corrupt it or, or, or do something for themselves. And that's why Meshian here, who is sort of the quote unquote destined mate of Meshia, that's why she's so worried. And she's like, no, please help me somebody do something because I'm being tortured. And there's a way in which if Jahi and Jeterna are the same creature, Jeterna being a Megatherian who basically turns traitor to her own side, which is what she's doing by supporting Severian in the end, that actually does fit the whole general theodicy thing of even things that seem to be evil can turn out for good in the end because then what's happened is a megatherian whose job it was to go out and seduce severian she ends up being seduced by severian and tries to help him and say you know be be aware this bad stuff is about to happen in a minute we're going to see jahi walking with the demons the herajals right we're going to see all that Uh, okay okay let's let's see about that so yeah, so Jahi walks around the desk and leans over the familiar shoulder, kind of a good implication yeah. of size. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a little joke here, right? She's yeah. leaning over his shoulder, looking at him, and he's busy doing his thing. Yeah, and, and he wasn't, the familiar wasn't really paying attention to her, right? right. He's paying attention to Meshian. So. And here she says, how interesting, crude but interesting. Yeah, so the familiar turns and gapes at her, and she flees laughing. He runs clumsily after her, and a moment later returns crestfallen. So the familiar is panting. She's gone. Yes, free, Nod says. Meshian says, free to pursue Meshia and ruin everything as she did before. As she did before. Yes, so the cyclic nature of things, like the temptation. um, So we talked about, you know, Cain and Abel and East of Eden and all that stuff. And so there is there is the sense that there is something cyclic about this. Yes. And there but there's also it could even be, I mean, as she did before. Yeah. As she did before, I mean, if the Megatherians have seduced the Ashians, then, you know, they've already been successful in some places on the planet. And, you know, maybe it's not talking about that entire thing, but they have been successful. They are followers of the, the Megatherians on the planet already. That's okay. yeah. So the familiar says, uh, you don't realize what this means. My master will return soon and I am a dead man. And Nod says, the world is dead. So she has told you. The only uh, potential player in this story is a candidate for Jahi. Again, feels like Agia, but I, I don't understand Agia and I don't understand Jahi, so they don't have an explanation to each other. She's the only player who comes just close to attempting to overturn Severian the Autar, breaching the Essa. Jaterna, again, I don't just I I don't see her in this character. But let's go on and see. Let's see if we see something else. Yes, she says, "Torture, you have one chance yet. Listen to me." You must free the giant as well. And the figure says, and he will kill me and release you. I will consider it. At least it will be a quick death. Meshian, he hates Jahi. And though he isn't clever, he knows her ways and he's very strong. What's more, I can tell you an oath that he will never break. 
Give him the key to his shackles. Then stand by me with your sword at my neck. Make him swear to find Jahi. Return her here and bind himself again. Uh, so not whoever he's supposed to be, I suppose. Uh, Bald Anders. Uh, he hates Jahi, whoever she is. Yeah, and I, and I actually think this makes it, it does make some sense for Baldanders and it's actually the more I think about the play I like we had talked before James about how I always saw Baldanders as oh he's just supposed to be like a negative version or, or a sort of arrogant version of what humanity could become on their own and now I'm actually wondering like is there a way in which what Baldanders was trying to do was to use human knowledge to become big like the Megatherians yes. to fight yes. Like to not to become a Megatherian, but like he wasn't he didn't want to go become just another Abaya or as you but maybe he was actually trying to do what Severian's doing, but in a different sense. And this is also a conversation that Jonas and Severian have in Claw the Conciliator, where they're like the defense of the Atrak, how can human sized soldiers possibly fight these giants? And then there's like this pause. It's like, well, big things themselves, right? Like yeah. that's one possibility that's suggested. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking about like I had always thought of Baldanders as this like totally separate force on his own that's trying to that ultimately Wolf is seeing as evil. But actually, I do like this a lot because I feel like maybe I understand Baldanders better and why the fight with Severian is happens where it is. Like I always thought if that's what Baldanders is, is this like negative version of like negative outcome for humanity. Why does the fight happen way before the end? Like, mm -hmm. but now it makes more sense if like what Baldanders is, is seeing that he's just made some mistake and he thinks that Severian is just going to go make some other mistake or something. But maybe the reason he fights Severian at the end is actually not just sort of simple jealousy, but he realizes how wrong he's been and, and he's, he sort of lashes out. Anyway, point is, it gives Baldanders more of a sort of narrative point to me here in, in his role in the whole story, because it always bothers me that if Baldanders was supposed to just be bad direction for humanity, it seems like he should be the antagonist. But and he is an antagonist, but he's not the main one. Um, so but the play does give a sense in which Baldanders and Severian are trying to do something together. It's just that Baldanders doesn't he just can't see quite what Severian's doing. Whereas he, in the play here, he does like he, he becomes much a little bit more like his ally. Um, and maybe when he rages and when he loses it at the end, it's because he, the plan to do this turns him more into a Megatherian than he thought he could. Like he thought he could oppose the Megatherians, but instead he becomes more like one. And that actually makes more sense to me and makes a whole lot, makes Baldanders make a little bit more sense. And he says, you know, when I got rid of the claw, it was because it was a crutch. It was in your way. It was like in the way of your development towards what you were going to be. You know, he says, yeah. I was helping you by getting rid of it rather than hindering you. Yeah. And that actually, I feel like this, this helps me a little bit with Baldanders. Know maybe more what, what Wolf was after here, but we'll see. Um, Meshian. Right. Yeah, so the familiar hesitates and then Meshian says, you've got nothing to lose. Your master doesn't even know he's supposed to be here. But if she's gone when he returns... And the familiar says, I'll do it. Then the familiar detaches a key from the ring at his belt. And Nod says, I swear, as I hope to be linked by marriage to the family of man, so that we giants may be called the sons of the father, that I will capture the succubus for you and return her here, and hold her so that she shall not escape again, and bind myself as I am bound now. 
so many motivations expressed here that I do not understand. Yeah, like, so, yeah, go on. So if following up on that idea of Baldanders, though, like if Baldanders recognizes, though, there's going to be some kind of evolution of humanity and he knows that that he has to stop the Megatherians from doing it. Here, Nod says, I'm going to marry into it. Like, it's not actually going to be me, but my offspring will eventually become that. And that's kind of, in a sense, saying Baldanders is like, yeah, I know not every human can become big like I'm going to be, but at least I can do this to myself to become something that can help fight the Megatherians um, and at least make way for something different. Like, in Baldanders may not quite recognize that, but I feel like Nod does. And Nod maybe shows what Baldanders figures out and part of the reason why he ends up helping Severian at the end of Earth, but not just not through the story. Like at the ultimate end, Baldanders is going to realize, I think, what his real role is in all of this. Um, but it's it's not what he thinks it is, even when he's still fighting Severian. So anyway, I feel like some of that stuff here, he's like saying, yeah, I'll help you. Um, and that's definitely the Baldanders we get in in Earth. It is. Um, so maybe if we're thinking about how the play here is works, I don't... It is done so elliptically. Like, I don't know if Wolf could be saying, don't worry, I'm explaining here that even <laughs> though the last time you see Baldanders and sort of the Lictor, he's going to seem like a big bad villain. Hopefully you'll understand that when all is said and done, he will have become something else. I, I don't know. But it, once Earth is there, I feel like it is spelled out a little bit more. Yeah. So, yeah. so the familiar says, uh, after Nod you know, makes his uh, promise, he says, is that the oath? Meshian says, yes. And then the familiar throws the key to Nod and draws his sword and holds it ready to strike Meshian. Familiar says, can he find her? He must find her. And Nod, as he unlocks himself, says, I'll catch her. That body weakens, as she said. She may whip it far, but she'll never learn that whipping will not do everything. And so this is part of the thing, right? Can force accomplish what other things don't, you know? And this is the, the progression that we get in the whole book of the New Sun, where at the beginning, uh, when he encounters that Kaibet of Thecla, who says, isn't it the strength of the mind that makes one man, you know, believe he's autark and force that belief on others, that whipping someone to believe something. And that's not, not the way that, that fades into oblivion. It starts with those positions like Gnosticism and might making right. And then eventually it leads to mercy and other things, mm -hmm. um, you know, as the body does weaken. Yeah. And what is Baldander's doing? He's kind of like trying to whip himself right into being yes. bigger and bigger and bigger to fight the things. And it is kind of cool. It, that the stage direction there says that it nod is unlocking himself. And yes, that's what he says. He's all, what he says is what's wrong with Jahi, but it also is somewhat ironically what may be wrong with Baldanders. It's wrong with him. And he's yeah. freeing himself from that perception. And he's freeing himself yep. from that perception. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's kind of cool. So, yeah. Yeah. So not exits and there's a, this is uh, still struggling. This is the event. I can't find any suggestion in the book of the sun, but the familiar says, I must continue with you. I hope you understand. He's going to keep on torturing Meshian. Familiar tortures Meshian, who screams. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> and the familiar speaks in uh, sotto voce. I mean, that's as in a whisper that the audience is expected to hear. How fair she is. I wish that we were met when better things might be. And that's interesting too, right? That it's this yearning there for something much, much better uh, that, that, mankind's approaching so even this debased familiar who's torturing he sees that and he's inspired by it and that's the course of severian as well and all the torturers guild and everything that's kind of negative and mean and merciless in mankind it still yearns for something higher 
Yeah, I still, I definitely see the the uh, Severian and Thecla story. Yeah, yeah. Yes. and it's it's kind of weird. Like you can read that as the familiar just being absolutely clueless, clueless. How being like how fair she is. I wish that we were met when things were better. And he's like, well, you could stop. But he's still the odd thing is the familiar, just like Severian. He is thoroughly committed to trying to do his duty. He's trying to be part of a larger plan. He's trying to serve his role well. He's doing what authorities tell him to do. He's doing what his cultures told, right? It's totally Severian in that moment, right? Like he's Severian, even after he does have mercy on Thecla and, and gets her out of the situation, he feels horrible for having hurt his guild. And, and, you know, he always has the thing where he's not going to just take the easy route out of saying, oh yeah, and I'll just rebel because rebelling is fine. You know, instead it's like, no, I've got to figure out how to make how to reform the guild so that every all these good men who are part of this guild could be doing the right thing. Anyway, it's it's a tiny little moment just in that line. And it seems kind of superficial, like he's clueless, but I actually feel like it speaks a lot to the way Wolf tried to get all these different motivations in Severian at the same time. So anyway, yeah. But so the stage darkens. Jahi's running feet are heard. After a time, a faint light shows Nod loping through the corridors of the house <laughs> Moving images of urns, pictures, and furniture behind him show his progress. Jahi appears among them, and he exits stage right in pursuit. Jahi enters stage left, with second demon walking in lockstep behind her. So this is the image I was talking about, right? Where Wolf is yeah, the, with the Hyrajuls and, and Jahi. In together. Uh, Suddenly their uh-huh. motivation is together. It seemed as if they weren't. And then when she comes back in, stage left, right? He went stage right, and then she mm-hmm. comes in from the other side. And she's walking with the Herajuls because all things serve the Increate. Uh, and these demons that are Herajuls, I mean, even if they're not necessarily angels, they're still serving the will of God in the long run. And it tells us about all their missions, I think. Well, the one thing the Herajuls is that we do know what their motives are. We may we yeah. may sometimes struggle with with Baldanders or uh, Agia, but the Herajuls, we know what they're up to. Yeah. yeah, to call them demons is still similar to kind of calling him angels and the logic that will sets up because the whole mask thing, right. The, you have the worst thing that you could have, but also has beautiful things both in front of it and behind it. Well, and it's in, yeah, of, well, in Christian you know, legend, the demons are angels, right? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so here, Jah, he says, where can he have gone? The gardens are burned black. You have no flesh beyond a seeming. Cannot you make yourself an owl and seek him out for me? And the second demon kind of mocking her goes, who? <laughs> and Jahi says, Meshia, wait until the father hears how you've treated me and betrayed all our efforts. So here she's almost appealing to, to God right above, like the father, the, the, the all good or, or her Mazda, whoever, you know, this particular. Um, well, I mean, remember, there is a father in this uh, story, right? Yeah, father Aniri. Well, I just feel like she's talking about a more powerful father than that to make yeah. the de- I mean, who are the Herajuls? The Herajuls aren't afraid of Father Aniri. I mean, you know, like he's he's not in the grand scheme of things. The Increate is the father. And that's whose will is being served right. and whose will might be betrayed. But even so, it's still going to be served. Yeah. Now, it is weird. Like the one thing that would that is hard, I feel like, with connecting Jahi and Jaterna is that we get to see in the story that Jaterna kind of falls in love with Severian. We don't necessarily see Jahi change 
like like we don't see the Jahi character in the play have a sort of explicit excuse to change her nature. Like it seems like when she comes in at the beginning, she's both kind of making fun of Meshia and Meshian and Meshian is still afraid of her. So I'm one question I do have in the play. Well, is Meshia afraid of her? Meshia is the one that struck her. She's well, yeah, the one that he, gave her a fat lip. Right. He And he he's the one he's like, well, should I let her seduce me? I don't know. And right. And, and he's like, chatting with the autark there but she definitely seems like a quote-unquote bad guy at the beginning and that's why it's like in the logic of the play itself wolf may not have made it perfectly clear that she becomes better i mean apart from having her here be well nod has to get her nod has to get her right that's right. like the, the final conflict of this is whether Nod can achieve can retrieve Jahi or not. And this is almost the redemption of the those sea powers, you know, like can all the things on earth be redeemed or not and captured? Because mm. they want to it, it, what she says is to uh, capture Catadon, cast out his canation, which is basically to to strip man of free will and higher thought, right? Mm-hmm. But um really this is the opposite. He's trying to bind her in a way yeah. to mankind. So, um, but yeah, it's weird. So, um, so the second demon then says, betrayed all our efforts. And second demon says, wait, who will hear it from you? It was you who left Meshia lured away by the woman. What will you say? The woman tempted me. We have done with that so long ago that no one remembers it, save you and I. And now you spoiled the lie by making it come true. That, by the way, that whole thing about spoiling a lie to make it come true is such a good Wolfian. Yeah, that's so Wolfian. Yeah. And if the demons are still Herodules, then the quote, so long ago, no one remembers it except you and I suggest it either occurred in the future or outside of time in Yesod or in another universe. If Jahi is Jaturna here, still got nothing. Agia, no. Uh, and you have spoiled the lie by making it come true. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, that's the that's the uh, wolf lie paradox. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I just want to say here that mankind is burnt in the coming of the new sun, right? Mm. And so this, you know, so long ago that no one remembers it, save you and I. Remember that Severian memorializes humanity, but all those things are going to fade away too eventually. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so the relationship with the Harajuls and Jahi, this makes me want to suggest that here, Jahi is the Kumeyan. And if I knew what to do with that, it might yield fruit, as I've said all along. I've seen a lot of points of illusion between the Kameyan and Agia, so I don't know, maybe. So Jahi turns on the second demon, and she says... Jahi? You little foul sniveler, you scrabbler at windows. <laughs> I'd have loved if the second demon had said, Scrabbler at windows? How dare you? <laughs> but of course, a, a scrabbler at windows is a peeping Tom, and that's uh, a little bit of the job of the BFOs, right? To go back in time and observe. Not entirely, but it's an insult. Yeah. And then the second demon says, jumps back and says, and now you're exiled to the land of Nod, east of paradise, which, mm. okay, which is kind of cool because if, if what we're kind of figuring out is that the Megatherians, if they win, what they do is they stay in a kind of just animalistic land. Like, like Nod has talked about the land of Nod, east of paradise, that he's mother earth, mother Gaia, which is good. It's a good thing. But if you stay there, you, you don't evolve, right? There's, there's gotta be something else at work in the story of evolution here, which is Meshia in the, in the logic of the play. And so for the second demon to say that and saying, you've now kind of quote unquote exiled yourself to the land of Nod, it's basically saying she's not going to serve any purpose for evolution. She's cut herself off. And I think that is their plan, but they don't actually 
I'm not sure they actually pull it off, but I, 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 there's no sense going into this now. I, I, I think I have a bead on uh, the land of Nod, east of Paradise. But Jahi is looking more and more like the Kamehian right here. Uh, so, And if so, it gives us a tiny glimpse into the backstory. There, people have been waiting for them for so long. So Nod's footballs are heard off stage. Jahi hides behind uh, Clepsidra. And second, <laughs> is I pronounced that right? I don't know. Yep, the Clepsidra, yeah. And second demon produces a pike and stands with it in the attitude of a soldier as Nod enters. Uh, yeah, Clepsidra is a water clock. And that friend suggests that location here now is what? The atrium of time? I don't know. That's more and more interesting. Could, could Jahi be Valeria here? All right. I want to talk about symbolism again. All right. It's a clock. It's a water clock. Severian has this mastery over time, right? The conciliator has this mastery over time. And what is the big thing that's coming? The flood, right? And so this water flooded time, um, Juturna exiled to a flooded earth, really. Like the, the, the Clepsidra here really, I think, symbolizes all of that. And we get the same thing with the Vatic fountain. What is the uh, Vatic but a prophecy, right? And so it's it's um, this, this watery prophecy that we've seen all along. But here it's explicitly linked to time passing and the new sun, I mean, coming here, you know? I buy that. I think that, I think that works pretty well, actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Nod, speaking to the second demon, says, How long have you been standing there? And a second demon saluting, as long as you want, sir. What news is there? Second demon, all you want, sir. A giant as high as a steeple has killed the throne guards, and the autarch's missing. We've searched the gardens so often that if only we'd been carrying dung instead of the spears, the daisies be as big as umbrellas. Ducks closes down and hopes is up, so's the turnips. Total, totally bizarre, right? <laughs> Almost wellerisms, but not quite. Yeah. yeah. Second demon. Tomorrow should be fair, warm, and bright. Looks significantly towards the Clepsidra. And a woman <laughs> with no clothes on has been running through the halls. What is that thing, Nod says? A water clock, sir. See, you, knowing what time it is, can tell by that how much water's flowed. Nod is looking at it and says, There's nothing like this in my land. Do hmm. these puppets move by water? <laughs> Not the big ones, sir. Okay, so this is, first of all, this has got to be a reference to the dream that yes. Severian had in Baldander's bed. Um, yes. However, once again, if we're going to say that Nod is the Megatherians or even Baldander's, then, you know, there's nothing like this in my land is really, really ironic. Even, even Baldander's uh, house was by the water. I think there's one way to look at it. If the but and it goes back to what Mark said about this being like a perfect symbol of things. It's it's a contraption, but it's also a symbol. For Baldanders to look at it and see the puppet to, show. To see the puppet show and to see it backwards, like to for the to sort of accept when the second demon says, Oh, it's backwards. It, you know, the thing that it's supposed to tell you is the like it's, you get the mechanics and the symbolism backwards, right? Is is what and the meaning backwards, which is what the demon says. That's in some ways Baldander's problem, right? Was he was saying you're you're focused too much on the mechanics of fighting Megatherians by getting big and getting strong and using science and all that stuff. Whereas what you should have been doing was taking basically a more spiritual route, which is kind of what what Earth and New Sun and it gets at a little bit. At least that's one way I think that you can see that. So, yeah. so Jahi bolts off stage, 
pursued by Nod. But before he is fully out of sight of the audience, she dives between his legs, re-entering. He continues off, giving her time to hide in a chest. Meanwhile, the second demon has disappeared. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, but I don't see a connection to our story unless you know it's Hathor's oh. sex doll that he kept in a okay. box. Yeah, I was going to say if <laughs> you did think if you were still thinking that Jahi was Asia, then for her to hide in a box. <laughs> and yeah. if Asia is the paracoida, then you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yes, yes, that's perfect. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so I love. I, that. I still think though the encapsulation of of these things for the future and the way that it's contained is more important than these literal. You know, okay, is there an echo of this in in the actual mm. person to person story level rather than? Yeah, and the, and that's yeah, and it's making a whole lot more sense to me more yeah. like that this time. So well, I have no reaction to that besides sigh. <laughs> So Nod re-enters. Ho, stop. Nod runs to the opposite side of the stage and returns. My fault, my fault. In the garden there, she passed close by me once. I could have reached out and crushed her like a cat, a worm, a mouse, a snake. That's kind of a reference to uh, various wizards in the in uh, mythology and legend who changed from one animal into another, into another, into another. But he ends at the snake. The tempter, and you know you're you're always going to be stomping at her. Yeah, yeah, and then and this is cool. So Nod turns on the audience. So now we're starting to get. Don't this. laugh at me. I could kill you all, the whole poisoned race of you, destroy the valleys with your white bones. But I'm done. I'm done. And Meshion, who trusted in me, is undone. So this is kind of cool. Like this is where Baldander starts to lose it, right? And yeah. and it's kind of not to go too simplistic with it, but there's a bit of Star Wars here where it's like, ah, oh, Baldander's trusted too much in the dark side of materiality and mechanics and and it started to poison him and started to help him lose control because he didn't have a a higher we used for it. i don't know but it, but it, anyway it seems right <laughs> so i mean you know that that servant of the future that he wants to be he's like i'm finished right my job is done i've screwed it up but that's yeah. undone everything that i wanted to accomplish and, and marry myself into yeah, and and he's wrong about that, right? Like Baldanders is going to be wrong, but but so yeah, maybe that's his thing. Maybe that's why he fights Severian at the end is because he feels like he's failed everybody and he screwed it up, and and he fights and he, at everything. Yeah, and, has rage. Rage is okay. the last thing left. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So Nod strikes the Clepsida, sending brass pans and water flying across the stage. Yeah, he just. Yeah, I have he, no idea at that one. But that, <laughs> that is kind of. Yeah, it's like him destroying his tower, right? Yeah, and Bald Anders doesn't see himself as the enemy of man, but a potential savior. But like I said, he's been chained to himself. And he does say in Earth, I I sought to free you, Severian, from the useless relic, you know, so that that sense that the only thing he can do is try to destroy at this point. Yeah. And that's what he tries to do. He destroys the claw, basically, or tries to. Yeah. And that is, it's also too kind of saying if, if Bald Anders is a bit of, you know, the humanity's hope in its own material abilities or scientific abilities that it leads to destruction all the time without the sort of higher purpose. That's a good sort of Wolfian kind of point. And even yeah, this it's, next it's speech. Saruman, right? It's Saruman, it, like what Wolf talks about with Saruman in the, the essay on Tolkien about how Saruman is completely sort of seduced by science and technology instead of remembering where he was. And that's why he ultimately becomes capable of being yeah. seduced by Sauron. And, and, and this 
what Nod's next line here is all about that, right? Where he finally questions mm-hmm. what good is knowledge of man, right? What good is this gift of speech except that I can curse myself? Good mother of all the beasts, take it from me. I would be as I was and shout wordless among the hills. Reason shows reason can only bring pain. How wise to forget and be happy again. So knowledge only brings that, that knowledge of failure and disaster. Yeah, I believe we, that sounds like a specific philosopher, Craig. I can't remember tell you which one it is, but <laughs> well, it's I mean, it it's the specifically the um, autochthons, right? Or not? No, 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 no not, not the, the autochthons. The zoanthropes, yeah. yeah, it's specifically the zoanthropes too that he talks about, where he's like, yeah, reason reason just leads to more pain, and so the so best thing to do is beast. give up your mind. Yeah. But also, okay. I mean, what what Bald Anders has done to himself explicitly through that experimentation, and he is starting to forget things, like yep. he's getting absent-minded. You know, there's something about that pro process that maybe he does want to undo it. Who can say? Yeah, yeah. which also changes my point about bald dinners like i always thought that oh when we find out the reveal that talus is not the master and bald dinners is, is the master i always thought before in some ways that bald dinners was just kind of pretending to be dumb and forget things. no he wasn't like he, he really was no wit. yeah yeah well, so his memory sucks compared to severians you know yeah. like, he can't remember he's like who are you yeah and that's part of his problem mm-hmm. yeah that and that's real okay and that's yeah yeah it makes a lot more sense so so Nod seats himself on the chest in which Jahi hides and buries his face in his hands. As the lights dim, the chest begins to splinter beneath his weight. <laughs> when the lights come up again, the scene is once more the Inquisitor's chamber. Meshian is on the rack. The familiar is turning the wheel and she screams. So this is a new, new a new act, right? Yeah, a new scene at yeah. least, that's for sure. Yeah. So the familiar says, that made you feel better, didn't it? I told you it would. Besides, it lets the neighbors know we're awake in here. You wouldn't believe it, but this whole wing is full of empty rooms and sinecures. Here the master and I do our business still, but we do it still, and that's why the Commonwealth stands, and we want them to know it. Uh, literally, a, a sinecure is a job that pays a salary, but requires little or no work. And here I think it's a pun for an empty office. Or BS Jobs is that book mm-hmm. that was out a while back, which I thought was interesting, so... Yeah. So, um, yeah. And that's so much of the Commonwealth at this point. So enter the autark as if on cue, his robes are torn and stained with blood. And he says, the autark says, what place is this? And the autark sits on the floor, his head in his hands in an attitude reminiscent of nods. Interesting. I don't know why. And it's the, I think though, it's the same point. Like the autark had been like, oh, we can, we can save ourselves. We can do everything. And he's defeated in, in, for similar ways. So. In the familiar sense. What place? Why, the chambers of mercy, you jackass. <laughs> Can you come here without knowing where you are? Right. And of course, here it's great that they're called the chambers of mercy, where the opposite yeah. is happening, which is also a whole point that, you know, the, in some ways the torturers becoming the guild of the, 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 the truth the same, and penitence. And, yeah, which is exactly what Baldanders had kind of, you know, his, even though he had good intentions, they, they turned on him. Yeah. So the Autark says, I've been so hunted through my house this night that I might be anywhere. Bring me some wine or water, if you've no wine here, and bar the door. The Autark has been hunted in house absolute, uh, I guess. Or maybe the Citadel. Who's hunting it? So, you know, his power has dissolved. So this is like the collapse of his power. It could be that there's an uprising. It could be the Baudelaria. It could be like anything, but it could just be, I mean... It could literally be the waves of the sea coming to get him or that assassin. He just, he's no longer in control. 
Yeah. And right. I think too, to, if you're to look for like a plot point, like when Meshian says that she seduced seven of the guards, but she has no charm to do it. Like there may be something about like people realizing the futility of the autark. There may be a few people waking up a little bit and realizing that they want something more. And so there's revolution kind of like Vodalus coming from a bunch of different directions that are starting to, to tear this thing apart. Yeah. The familiar says we have Claret, but no wine. And I can hardly bar the door since I expect my master back. So a claret is a wine. It's a dark red wine. So even the etymology of the word is that it's a wine. But the joke here is that they don't have wine, but they have a lot of blood. And it's also like a weird sort of uber bureaucratic moment, right? Where he's like, yeah, okay, you may be the autark, but I can't bring you wine because all we have is claret and I can't bar the door because my immediate master is coming back. So I can't really do what you say. Like it is kind of like the whole system just doesn't work right right anymore so then the autark. So the autark says more forcefully do as i tell you in the familiar very softly you are drunk friend go out <laughs> and the autark says i am what does it matter the end is here i am a man neither worse nor better than you and nod's heavy tread is heard in the distance and the familiar says he has failed i know it Messian says, he has succeeded. He would not come back so soon with empty hands. The world may yet be saved. And the Autark, what do you mean? And enter Nod. The madness he prayed for is upon him, but he drags Jahi behind him. The familiar runs forward with shackles. Messian says, someone must hold her or she will escape as she did before. And then the familiar drapes chains on Nod and snaps close the locks, then chains one of Nod's arms across his body in such a way that he holds Jahi and Nod tightens the grip. The familiar says, he's killing her. Let her go, you great booby. And the familiar snatches up the bar with which he's been tightening the rack and belabors Nod with it. Nod roars, tries to grasp him and lets the unconscious Jahi slip down. The familiar seizes her by the foot and pulls her to where the autark sits. Familiar, here, you, you'll do. And part of this maybe too, I'm trying to think about like the way that we've been lining up some of the, characters here the fact that baldanders now is going crazy and kind of killing jahi it may have been that there's a moment where if baldanders kept going with his rage he might have start turning against the people like jahi who might have actually if she was in line with the higher duels who are doing good things now she might have figured out something better but he's still killing her um it's a little harder here because because the allegory hasn't specifically lined everything up yet and, and i think too that Ending with the violence, because in New Sun, we see his violence at the end. That's the yeah. last image of him. Yeah. So, like, we, we we don't get his motivation, but, like, his character arc ending in violence in New Sun, I think it's important that it ends in violence here. Like, there's a risk to that. Like, he's he's gone off the deep end, and so this is Baldanders for sure. Wait hmm, a minute. Yeah. Shouldn't this be whatever Baldanders does at the end of Earth of the New Sun, if your interpretation is correct? This is the last thing we see in New Sun, but we have his motivations. And so we would have to extrapolate his motivations. And then eventually he's going to be redeemed. He's not going to destroy Jahi. Everything depends on it. Like this moment where he has the risk of killing her and who's tightening those chains, the familiar, right? That system, that old system of torture. But those tortuous things are going to be loosed and redeemed in a way. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can get I I can see that, too. Yeah, because the play is the, like the play gives us the directions towards it, but it's not it's it's not just a sort of step by step. Yeah. Yeah. thing. So but then the familiar says, it says here, you'll do. 
and the familiar jerks the Autark erect and swiftly imprisons him in such a way that one hand is clamped about Jahi's wrist, then returns to torture Meshian. Unseen behind him, Nod is freeing himself of his chains. Okay, so looks like we have finally <laughs> reached the end of this play because now we're going to move directly into the next chapter, which will have Bald Enders blowing up the play. Um, I think I think everyone knows kind of the direction that it, that y'all are doing. We should probably just kind of do a summary. I think mine is going to be the longest of y'all's because I, uh, unlike you guys, I have changed my mind about a lot of things about this play and about the the book. Um, so let's start with with you guys. Either one of you can kind of say what what is the summary? What is going on in this play from a bird's eye view? I'll go first. I mean, I, I, I want to give myself the last word, but you know what? Let me just go first because it's going to be concise. No, we can. We can give if we want to give Mark the last word. He's no, you guest. don't have to. But no, let, let me let me just say very quickly. <laughs> so it starts off with a little bit of, as I said, a, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court where you have mythical figures kind of from the very past. And it's the opposite. They're kind of thrust forward into the modern Autork's court, right? So you get this sense of Genesis, uh, this, this new man, new woman, all that renewal. And it's like, okay, here they are thrust into the end of time. So we get this renewal scenario and, and the idea that at the end, just as the title, Eschatology and Genesis, that at the end of everything, there's going to be a new race that's going to come. And so we see the temptation of Jahi as she tries to corrupt that. So the big uh, danger in the first part is just that Jahi will succeed in what she's been sent to do. Now, the, the complicating factor is the demons and their motivations, right? Do they want to destroy mankind? Well, actually, the Herigules do want to destroy mankind originally for the excesses that they saw. So they kind of work against humanity, right? When they plant possibly that dark seed in the sun or whoever caused that, that sun's um, loss of its natural lifespan. And so now, though, there's the chance for that renewal, but even that is bringing destruction. And so after that scene, you get a little bit of the struggle between Meshian and Jahi, which I think is symbolic also of which direction will this gravidity take? Because the female imagery in New Sun is purely archetypal, and it will always be thus. You're moving away from the gravid past of the dead grandmother who was resurrected towards something more sublime and true. And so this future humanity that we're going to get, it's their struggle underneath a tree there. And that's also very important because we know that the green man is coming, right? And so anything underneath the tree, uh, and all this talk of humanity is like the winter killed seeds that are going to sprout again, that reinforces the coming of the green man who's going to be related somewhat to the high rose. And by the time we get to short sun, this will become even more explicit there. But the future of humanity, what's it going to be? It's going to be something more. I'm not going to say, you know, um, necessarily that the green man is free of sin or even the implication that he might eat, right? But it's going to be powered by the new sun. That's the thing that's that's interesting about the green man. His life essence is going to be the light that Severian is bringing, that light of the new sun. So that's not explicitly in the play, but I think that struggle between Jahi and Meshian is another huge component. And then it just directly 
switches into the final portion, which is that the end of Earth of the New Sun, these struggles between Baldanders and Juturna and how eventually all things do serve the Increate in bringing that. But there's a risk, right? There's a risk that that torturous guild is not going to fulfill its purpose or that it will fulfill it too well, right? That it won't be subverted. When it says the Chamber of Mercy, the risk is that they won't have mercy. They'll actually torture all of these individuals who have a role to play to death. And that image where Jahi walks in lockstep with the demons is, I think, ultimately important because all the themes of this are that without destruction, you can't have new life. Without the death of the body, you can't have the birth of the immortal spirit. And I think that the interplay here towards that future is really where this play is going, even though it starts with, okay, here's myths thrown into the present time. Here's a a symbolic struggle. And then here is finally these mythical characters who kind of map to some of them in our story to see where they're going to go to ultimately serve the same end even though they're fighting each other they need to stop fighting and notice they're all bound together at the end they're all locked together the autark is bound with jahi who's bound with nod right they're all stuck there but nod is starting to free himself so they have to be bound together in a common threat before they can serve the same purpose and i think that's what the play is about In addition to just being eschatology and Genesis, the end is going to be the beginning and it's going to be a flood. Cool. And overall, I think I, I agree with that. I mean, I think there's a lot there. I, I might say it different ways, but, but the thrust of, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. That's all. Is that your no, summary? No, that's not my summary. I, I, I'll still come out. I'll take the last word if, if you're going to do yours, but yeah. no, I think, I think that helps me make sense of the shape of this thing. And I know that the one thing that was really bugging me forever was the role that Jahi plays in it. And even when I, we could say like, okay, she's Jaterna, like figuring out how that actually worked in that. I think I had misunderstood some things about how the play was presenting her role. And I think, especially for me, something about changing how I feel about Baldanders really made some stuff click. And it's not, it's not just Juturna, right? Like there's a couple. Oh yeah. Other- oh yeah. It's Megatherians, but it's the, it's there's the archetype and there's the temptation and it's what will the gravid uh, fertile humanity's future be. Yeah. 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 So cool. That's, I'm just responding saying, yeah. but no, I'll still, I'll still do a summary. So yes. Okay. James, we, we would have the, we would have the, uh, the counterpoint. Oh yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I now feel like I have a beat on this play. And even though I, I can't define everything, no, I can't define most of what I see there. I can see that it might be possible. So let's see, I'm going to do my summary. And then I think I'm going to have to spend some more time demonstrating on why my approach to this play, because it is the right one, is actually more practical than either of yours. So having got to the end of this play this time, I'm ready to declare that coming to the end, there is really only one thing I was right about going in. This play, sitting at the absolute center of the original manuscript of the novel, Wolf ended up expanding the end a lot, and that moved the relative position of the play within the front half of the novel. But this play is the key to the plot, often invisible or unremarked on by our limited, unreliable narrator. Where, Where I was wrong, I sort of anticipated in my heart that I would come away with no new insights from my reading of this play this time. And I got to say, the first two episodes did nothing to change that anticipation. However, gentlemen, I was wrong in that. And like the Herodules, uh, helping 
Baldanders to lay the foundation for necessary technology for future generations, your misguided attempts at this book have successfully opened my eyes to things about this play. You are my Baldanders and Talos, and thank you for that. So I started this play saying very often, look, look, I don't think Euro's interpretation is correct, but I don't have an interpretation, so it's better than mine. Well, I got into this play, and I think I do have an interpretation. It's not a complete one. Neither are yours. Mark will, of course, deny that. But I think Mark is wrong about that as well. The play is far more detailed in expressing the plot than I expected. Like I said, my doubts were confirmed that I would not extract anything useful in the play at the beginning. But I get to the end, and as we do in a wolf story, I find I've walked away with far more than I realized. I know this is completely counter to the approach of either of you, and, and that will make it hard for you to respond, but it is the only opportunity for me to lay out what I've come away with. So you're free to just respond with, I've said my piece, whatever, James, and, and that's fair. And for anyone who listens to this and says, come on, I'm team Craig and Mark all the way. Well, that's okay. You can just skip over this. Uh, for some of you, I think this might prove useful. Even if you reject the implications I draw, you'll have a useful algorithm. And remember, we do very much support disagreement yes no no please we want disagreement right we're going even if we think that james is totally wrong <laughs> we still support his right his right yes to yes it, yes so. and I, and as if you could stop me um additionally i was wrong or at least significantly wrong in my introductory hypothesis that this is not about the life and history of our severian but actually the first severian i might have been way off in that the purpose of this play is not primarily for severian at all which was my pet theory going into these episodes, but primarily for we the reader. It is Wolf laying out the world, the backstory, the motivations, the people that Severian encounters. And due to that conclusion, I feel confident that you two are as well astray as I was. At least as much. This is not Wolf laying down beat by beat Severian walking through the house absolute some 50 years in the future mashed up willy-nilly with some truly random events along the way, many of them completely out of order, such as the Bailey with Baldanders and Severian's conversation with the uh, uh, Hierodules before that fight, is, and some vague metaphorical um, hints tossed in for good measure. Aside from the evidence of the contrary, as I see it, that simply strikes me as implausible from a writer narrative creation standpoint. When Severian is wandering through House Absolute and seeing similarities to the events and the play, that that is Severian as an unreliable narrator, or perhaps it's more knowing on Severian's part, and more like Talos seeing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in the events of Sword of Lictor. But here, when Wolf wrote this play in the absolute center of the originally submitted manuscript, what he intended was, yes, some reference to the end of the world, because you know the players, the actual characters are looking forward to that event. But these events refer to the ancient and recent past and the present, which for some characters, including Severian and Herodules, who are moving reverse in time to Severian, is in their future. It is true that you have both equally lost the thread. When you draw as primary interpretations, morals or declarations of competing metaphysics, but at least in that, your conclusions are plausible. But in trying to wedge this play into events near the end of Earth and the New Sun, you're making things worse for yourselves. And I would spare you that. You confound yourselves because you find yourself, just for starters, repeatedly trying to wedge large parallel ram-shaped pegs into discrete round holes. To go back to, to part four, Mark was insisting that Nod's attack on the Autark took place in chapter 42 of Earth and the New Sun, when Baldanders in chains before Autark uh, Valeria 
He's got bloody hands. He's got bloody hands. But you know what's not there? No Harajuls. Uh, the, the Ark that Jahi is Jaturna. I'm going to hold off addressing it for a few minutes. But spoiler alert, I'm pretty confident right now that there's no way it could be her. I mean, it's entirely possible that Jaturna, Jaturna and Jahi could have some degree of equivalence, but it's not direct. It's elusive at best. You can't do what Mark does and start with the axiom that the play is about Severian walking through the house absolute, and then just violently wedge everything into that explanation, whether it is willing or not. Essentially, you're just cutting open an ox and spreading the entrails to force yourself to see something. That breaks every rule of exegesis, and you will reliably get the wrong answer if you do that. Mark says, let's just randomly mash up the fight in the valley in that scene. Who cares if the events were mashing or not even in order of the play? For example, or, you know, the Harajul's conversation with Severian takes place before the fight, not after. But guess what? Baldanders doesn't end up with a laser burn on his cheek, as not explicitly does in the play, because it's not in the same fight. There were no guards for him to fight in the Bailey. The Harajul's don't save Severian's life. That interpretation is just a mess. You can't take from here and take from there and then wave your hands and declare the parts that don't fit don't matter anywhere. I'm just going to abide no cheating on this. If the scene don't fit, you must look elsewhere. I would say, by the way, that that is precisely exactly what the history of allegory for the last 2,000 years on the Bible <laughs> Does. Well, so that, that, you, that you've might, got two thousand years of people to uh, argue yes, against, but, I, but, that, but I guarantee they will not tell you that that's what they're what they're trying to do, right? Yeah, that's what they always say. People they disagree with are doing, and they selectively mischaracterize what their opponents are saying. Yeah, so, well, <laughs> go ahead though. Well, I don't I don't see that as a shot across the bow. I am quite confident now that Wolf is leading you guys around by the nose with these few vaguely parallel references to the end of Earth at the New Sun. This is more true of Mark than Craig, because it seems to me that Craig is just simply less interested in plot implications of the play and is more interested in how things that they address, you know, how they might address the themes of the book. Because, you know, he's just like that. He cares less about things that are measurable and more about what things mean without being tightly bound to any one thing. And I take... And true. I take Craig's point about allegory, not necessarily being one-to-one, -one, but I don't think you should just pick from here and there as it suits you in the moment of a scene of the play and then claim to have detected what Wolf intended, unless you believe, like Mantis, Michael Andre Driussi, that this play is a random mishmash of mythology and literature and the plot of the play is not really intended to be understood per se any more than the last episode of the BBC's The Prisoner. Uh, obviously, I would not be building this case unless I thought it could derive many literal world-building nuggets of gold from this story. I think this play is about the events from the ancient recent past that were initially set down in Kanag's Book of the New Sun so long ago, but was passed through many other cultures and languages and renamings and Talmudic redefinings. I think there were multiple works that found their way in without substantially changing the original core story, like the tale of the student and his son as the way I read the tale. It might even have events from Severian's own Book of the New Sun in it. And then, of course, the whole thing is filtered through Talos's burlesque story and the actors spin on it. The scene of Earth and the New Sun that was positively predicted in the play is where the Contessa looks up from the road of air and sees Severian, her son, who has just struck her in the elevation ceremony at the Madigen. Remember, the Contessa is looking for the one who struck her and fears this guy who looks like her son might not be her son. And guess what? In a sense, he's not. He's been through a lot of changes and handoffs. Uh, even that comment matters. But remember, 
That has also already occurred in Severian's past because it happened in his mother's life right after she left Severian's room after his elevation ceremony. I'm very much inclined to think that maybe the last act of the play could well be taking place at least in part at the end of Earth of New Sun. But again, I, I don't see how Jaterna there could be doing any of the things that Jahi does in the play. Perhaps the last act is taking place off scene. I, I feel like Severian with Miles in the Citadel of the Octart, just as Severian senses Jonas's presence and knows something of what he's up to, he doesn't know where Jonas is ultimately going next. And that's how I feel about Wolf in this scene. And yet, when Severian tells us explicitly in chapter 42 of Earth of the New Sun, hey, I remember this from the play, in a book where Wolf has occluded so much and shown us some things without explicit telling. And now I shall, without, you know, without saying, and now I shall reveal who Apu Chow is. Uh, consequently, when Wolf lays it out for us like that, we should be putting our hands on our wallets. Both of you have read Wolf enough to know that if, if the protagonist interprets the world for us explicitly, there is a 75% chance that whatever the correct interpretation is, it ain't that. And that's, I think, what Mark is hanging his hat on by saying the play is about the end of Earth and the Sun. The very fact that Severian comments that, gosh, so many of these events are just like the play. I remember this. And he lays it out like that. It's evidence that he is to some extent wrong. Although, in some ways, right. Because as Mark used to constantly remind me, it, everything is it true seems somehow. that he's gone heretic on this point. Everything, right, everything is true in a wolf story. In the end, we know he's wrong because the events just don't fall in line. So, I'm not positive about the last act. The, the stuff with uh, Messian evokes uh, Thecla's excruciation. It probably is about that in part, but the stuff with Nod and Jai, he's not in the shadow of the torture, nor is it in Earth of New Sun. Uh, so I'm not sure. The one before that, with the Harajuls going back in time and establishing the autarky, the one before that is the meeting of Agilus and Agia. I'll get to that one. Um, ultimately, the problem here is not some esoteric violation of proper wolf exegesis. And uh, I kind of expected Wolf to audibly gasp when I said that. The true damage is that you're shutting yourself off from the elaborate, objective plot that Wolf has planted in the middle of this unreliably narrated first-person story from a protagonist with limited information. Uh, someone from uh, on Facebook asked what the point of the play is after we have Earth of the New Sun. Well, obviously, I'm arguing that I think this play is a huge value add, as the kids say, because it has information we have no inkling of elsewhere. There's really zero point in putting the play in that scene in Earth or any part of Severian wandering around aimlessly around the House Absolute, there is a reason, especially when this is all we had, to tell the backstory of how Earth and the characters of Severian encounters got that way. Even if Wolf is insisted on telling it in this jacked up way, there is reason for delivering to the, the Harajuls a message from the distant past of their own actions in their future. They're getting instructions on what to do from the screwed up rumors and legends of the past. That's Wolfian. The Harajuls are possibly encountering Baldanders for the first time in this play. Craig finds this a less interesting idea than a play that digs into the metaphysical themes of the book that provides us with a bottomless sandbox to play on. Uh, you know, he would. But that's not the author's purpose. And I'm just here to help you guys. So let's talk about the characters. Now 
that, I think I understand mostly who is who in this play, even though I don't always understand what they're doing. I think it's valuable to talk about them because I think I understand them now. Although, Craig, I can't always say what they mean. I have changed my mind about what is happening in this play since we started, and I need to lay all that out. Messia is Severian. I guess we agree on that. Our Severian, not first Severian. And for our purposes, that's all he is. I don't understand some things that are going on or what he is implying, but I do understand that it's important that Severian is Messia. Not metaphorically, but for reasons of impetus of the literal plot. Messia, as I have said, is not the first Severian specifically, whose life might very well have been very similar in this regard. We should ask ourselves why Severian in this play is the first man of Earth, the Adam of Earth. There's a plaque that calls him that in House Absolute, in Earth of the New Sun. If that were just a title, I don't believe the metaphor of Earth's Adam would have such a central role in this play. I'm convinced right now that it must have some real, not metaphorical significance. Notice that he is not called the first man of Ushus. This is combined with Meshia's conversation with the Contessa, where he does, in fact, call her daughter. As an analogy, Mark, in, in the book of the Long Sun, the book of the Short Sun, no spoilers here, Silk and the Raja often call people their son or daughter or sister or brother. And in many of those instances, I am quite convinced that it is true. Not literally true, but spiritually true. And when I say spiritually true, I don't mean metaphorically true. I mean that when you pull back from a higher level in the plot, those characters are their son, daughter, sister, or brother. And that's all I can say without massive spoilers. But I think the Contessa is in, is in some way like Severian's daughter, as well as his mother, just as Odilla is Severian's sister and the and wife, and Thecla is his mother, and perhaps his mother is spiritually lurking elsewhere in this story as well. But it's really confusing to me because, of course, I do believe that Contessa is the maid who played Catherine. She's the woman Severian sees on the path of air or the road of air. And I think what Severian sees in Earth, a new sun, is the maid traversing some portion of the tunnels under the citadel, which are out of time. And the purpose of those tunnels is time travel. And I think this suggested in uh, Syriaca's story. Despite what is confusing here, gentlemen, this explains the Contessa's conversation with Meshia, where she says, quote, if my body held a part of yours, drops of liquescent tissue locked in my loins. And the implication is uh, that if this were the case, she might survive the new sun. Well, Severian is a bit of liquescent tissue in her loins. He was her child. And she does survive the new sun because the old Autark ate her and she's in Severian at the time of, of Severian is recording all this because the old Autark is in him. And that is why Messia says she is, quote, less than a corpse because she is dead and yet she persists even without a body. And just to shut down another door, the Contessa never at any point represents Thecla actually because Messia says to the Contessa, I will not bed you. And that is not true for Thecla. Messiana is Thecla. I don't have it all down, but every radar and sonar I have beaming into this story keeps affirming that for me. The demons, of course, yeah. Uh, they are the Herodules, the, the three of them, Severian's friends. And that is positively the story of them traveling into the past in their flying saucer, helping Imar beat back the Askeans' assault on the Commonwealth and contriving with Imar to begin the Autarchial lineage process. I mean, come on. 
the end of that act with the autark being repeated over and over and the reference to the shaman warning them about this attack a shaman in an ancient temple covered with plants until it only looks like a hill that is this play right here in Aus absolute i get that Nod's imprisonment and attack on the Artarch is highly allegorical, so there can be multiple readings of it. I've given mine, but alternative readings should be as literal as the rest of that act, and we should not worm out of our obligation to interpret it by piecing the parts willy-nilly to, you know, just to mash them together and generate a nothing burger. I just want to interrupt one time and say that Come on. every time you think that metaphorical or or some other kind of meaning is just arbitrary or willy-nilly or can be anything at all i i don't understand where that comes from because first of all that's false it's also not at all how i think mark and i were doing things it feels very much like a straw man way to dismiss the sort of things that we're saying are i think that you guys get out of having to do a one-to-one uh metaphorical explanation by drawing a metaphor from here and a more well, metaphor from that, there. It's, well, let's put it this way. You have an assumption that the play has to have one-to-one things or else anything that's goes. That's absolutely like you, you, yeah, No, no, and so, and so, right, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's why I was saying at the beginning, like there's no, even the Pilgrim's Progress doesn't work on that. And, and so all I'm saying is that for those listening, when you set up that kind of alternative, I totally think it's a straw man because I don't think there's any thing out there in the world that really functions that way. So, um, and, and especially if we're having an allegory here now, anyway, I'm going to shut up cause I want you to finish your play, but I just want to, just for context, that part at least is not anything at all. Like what Mark and I are saying. Also, so just- it says at the very start of the play, this is the coming of the dawn of the new sun. Gabriel basically says that, right? Like it is outright said. It's not like we made it up. Like this is situated at a particular time and place. Uh, it takes place before uh, then, as what it's saying. This is in the this is the right middle ground before. before from between the beginning and the end. So that could happen anytime in this universe. It's coming now. That's what the end is. Um, okay. Well, now who's being, now, now, now who's a, ascribing a, a particular literal interpretation? Well, I would just say yeah, anytime yeah, you deal- been. James, yeah. I have been. Yeah, it's we like have you, been. You don't realize yeah. that I've been doing that the whole time. Yeah, but you've been, Mark, you can't, as I said, you've, whenever you run into a problem where the very literal events no, that we whenever have- you Mark, run into a problem, Mark, James, down. it's not a problem Mark, for me. It's no, you no, running. Mark, listen, whenever you've run into a problem with matching a one-to-one uh, comparison between the play and the end of Earth of the New Sun, you have grabbed happily from other portions in the Book of the New Sun and in other portions of Earth of the New Sun. Well, yes, but I think it's only you who thinks it has to be one-to-one and it has to come from that one place and only that place. Like that's, let's let you finish, but I think there, there's a lot of assumptions. The, the difference here, there's a ton of assumptions about what a good reading would be that and you're having fun with it, but at the same time, yeah. there's a lot of stuff that you're presenting as obvious that really is an assumption that you have about things. Now, we may have different assumptions about what those are, but it's not fair rhetorically to say, and you are missing it because we do this when we're intentionally saying <laughs> something else. Yeah. So anyway, but I'll, I'll let you finish. Yeah. Well, let me lay, lay it out this way. 
this play is a story. It's got, it has uh, the characters that we recognize in this story have different names. They have different um, expectations for their uh, characters as they've passed through other hands, but they are the, still the, essentially the same characters. And that is what, that, and that is, I think, very much the difference between at least mine and yours, Craig, uh, view of the story. Now, Mark, Mark is kind of a, a mix of that. And, um, but that's my, that is my, um, understanding of this play. And I can't, once I get away from that, I, I start losing the thread of the play. So just to restipulate, it seems obvious to me from this play that the invasion, uh, in, in Act Four, uh, was caused by the chaining of one of the Megatherians, probably by Tython, that th likely that thing in the Manapes cave, actually the mountain in which the Manapes existed. And the reason for that impossibly thick and high wall around the city of Nessus is to prevent the ability of that thing or anything like it from psychically influencing people on the other side, as Jonas explained they do. And that's why the residences are not permitted within a certain distance of that wall. All right, nod. All right, this is big. Nod is the Megatherians, I think, but more than just the 17 personalities. The, the scene with the Autark, the demons, and Nod suggests, nay, declares something very interesting about the origin of the Megatherians. The prophet says of Nod that he is, quote, the very proof of those portents I spoke to you of regarding the coming of the new sun. In future times, so it has long been said, the death of the old sun will destroy earth, but it is from its grave will rise monsters, new people, and the new sun. The old earth will flower then as a, as a butterfly from its dry husk, and the new earth shall be called Rusius. The prophet here is saying straight up that the Megatherians are themselves from the future, like the green men, after the coming of the new sun. They are descendants or representatives of the members of races that arise in Ushas. And this is why when the Autark asks Nod, where do you come from? Nod points to the east. The Autark accuses him of lying because he sort of is. When he points east, he's pointing to the rising sun. He's pointing to the future. So I don't see how there can be another reading of this without just tossing this part of the text to the wind. And this is confirmed at the beginning of the play when Gabriel tells Nod, you have the wrong creation, my friend. Gentlemen, as you can see, the parallel between the chained green man and the chained thing in the man apes cave is just too sweet. This information we could not have without the play. And that is why Nod placed both a megatherian and a statue, because those statues are also images, maybe new bodies of that future race. Mark calls them high rose. Maybe he's right. I don't think it matters too much what we call them, as long as we're clear who we're talking about. Wherever the highest orders of that race are, they are interacting with this time and the house absolute through these statues. And the statues are not there for protection of the house absolute. The interaction between the statue and the second soldier demonstrates this. The statues take no part in stopping Severian or Jonas in the house absolute grounds. And now, and now for Curiositas Earthus. I think that Baldanders is developing the technology that will be used by the Megatherians and perhaps even the, the, you know, the statue people to become what they are. And perhaps 
used by other beings of you know ashes for that new race to arise which will give birth to the um, humanity perhaps i think this is likely that they are the beings that create the hierogrammatis that's what the hierodules mean when they say that baldander's technology will be used by future generations that's certainly never explained is it yes it is in this play and Malrubius says he can't say what became of that race. Well, at least for some of them, they are here at this time on Earth, invading and manipulating their own past. I'm just following my nose. And as an honest broker, which I definitely try to be, I must confess that this makes certain theories I have about Long Sun, Short Sun, mildly problematic. But no matter how the chips fall, the Megatherians and the Statue people are invaders from the future, I think. And Baldanders is likely, technologically speaking, the Adam, the Meshia of the Megatherians and others of that race. So let's talk about Jockey, the most troubling at all. The final act of this play strikes the Undyne, eventually named Juturna, from the list of potential candidates for Jahi. I'm sorry, Mark. In the final act, Meshian says that Nod hates Jahi. Meshian says the fate of the world depends on stopping Jahi, but Juturna is a major player in helping Severian, whether it is the guile or the dream in Baldander's bed or at the end of Earth of the New Sun. She does not fit the bill. That's not her face on the wanted poster. The character that is constantly seeking Severian's death at every point in this story is Agia. And here I'm going to reveal that my understanding of Agia has diverged a great deal from when I discussed her in chapters 19 through 29 in Shadow. I now understand that she is at least, at least, uh, she's probably more, an autochthon from the north. That's why she's barefoot. That's why she knows how far the the sound, how far a Smilodon is by its roar. That's why she's not afraid of the lizard thing in uh, the botanic gardens. But she is afraid of the snake because she knows the lizard isn't dangerous, and she knows the snake can be. She's a bit of a tramp, like uh, Sherry Gold in the novel *Peace*. And I've always seen Hamlet's Mill crossovers between those two characters, and Hyacinth as well. This play, as I currently read it, tells us some of Agia's recent history before she started operating that rag shop. Jahi, in this play, is Wolf's frustrating reveal of who she is and what she's about. But at this point, it makes everything more complicated. She's not merely a femme fatale in a string of femme fatales. She is Severian's nemesis. She is Scorpio that eternally chases Orion the Hunter across the sky to kill him. She is surely the woman with the beans in Jonas's story, however occluded that is. And this matters when Jonas tells the story. One of the woman's agents, maybe metaphorically, maybe literally, one of her beans is already with the party. I can't tie all this together yet. I've suggested that she's more than she appears when Severian meets her, and she is. Certainly, Oglis is not her twin, and he means a great deal to her, and I'll get to Oglis in a minute. However, it seems likely that the execution of Agilis is the beginning the beginning of Agia's enmity with Severian. Agia promises to continue to seek vengeance on Severian, and we never see it happen. I think that's because Wolf already sort of explained how she continues to seek his life right here in the play. Agia's story will continue into the past. That's why the Herodules threaten to banish her east of Eden into the future where she can do no harm. Meshian says that she's no woman. That's intriguing, given what I've said. But her mystery, the mystery of Agia, gets even more twisted. And I'll remind you that I think Thecla is, in a sense, Severian's mother. Not actually, but genetically identical. But Agia, this is what happens when you play theory Jenga. Try it, kids. 
come up with an explanation and just go with it and see if it doesn't break the narrative and if it can solve something later. If it does, then just add that to the theory. When Jahi and Messiana are reclining beneath the rowan tree, Jahi makes a reference to Messiana striking her. Remember, I, I really think Messiana is Thecla. This implies that Agia perhaps will at some point end up in the past in the antechamber and be whipped by Thecla, as Severian recalls in his her memories. And I'll touch on that in a little bit. But get this, Jahi warns Messiana not to strike her again. And Messiana says, what are you going to do if I do? Summon Erinus against me? That is a very particular reference, my friends. What Messiana is in fact saying here is, what are you going to do if I strike you again, Jahi? Are you going to summon the demon who punishes children when they commit wrongs against their parents and ancestors? Jahi is being recognized by Messiana as her parent or grandparent or great-great-great-grandparent. Mythologically, Jahi is not an ancestor of Messiana. But in this play, Messiana is flatly saying she is. And by the transverse property of wolf theory Jenga, Agia is somehow Thecla's parents. Borsky was looking for Severian's maternal grandparent. Well, it's not Valeria, it's Agia. When Severian pulled his grandmother out of the lake of birds, he, implausibly, yes, had both grandmothers before him vying for his attention. That long passage in the end of Lost Loves where Severian is looking for Owen, when Severian is musing on desire and love and how when you love someone, you're going to come to desire them because you love them. And that explains Dorcas's desire for Severian, but it also explains Agia's desire for Severian. I've been suggesting that maybe Severian and Agia were criminals together. I've I had come to agree with Michael Andre Driussi on that, but now I'm beginning to think that at least it's not necessary to employ the first Severian in this case. There are other attractants at work here. And finally, and I'm not kidding, finally, let's talk about Agilus. The scene between Jahi and the second soldier and the statue is both relevatory and confusing to me. Jahi calls the statue lover. I had come to suspect Agilus was a homunculus resurrected by Asia. You know, she has a lot of Pelerine level knowledge and there's some kind of connection between the Pelerines and the witches, which we'll address at the end of this volume. And Pelerines seem to practice some kind of necromancy, which we'll get to in Sword of the Lictor. And I still believe that, quote, mother, whom Asia refers to, who gave them the rag shop and set them up in the rag shop is surely the Kumeyan. But I was wrong about Agia resurrecting Agilus. From the play, we are to understand that Agilus is one of that race from the future, like the Megatherians, like the statue. He is not subtly trying to manipulate Severian. He definitely tries to kill him, as he did many others. He's quite honestly there for his love of Agia. But here's the confusing part. It's not the statue that runs off with Agia, uh, Jahi. It's the second soldier. And Severian speculates about Agilus when he's being led off to the scaffold. Uh, I'll read it. Four sergeants in high dress, helmets, led Agilus forth. Then came the scarlet plumes, then the flash of armor, and at last Agilus's brown hair and his wide boyish face held uplifted because the chains that bound his arms forced his shoulder blades together. I remember how elegant he had looked in the armor of the guard's officer with the gold chimera 
splashed across his chest. It seemed tragic that he could not be accompanied now by men of the unit he had, in some sense, been his, instead of these scarred regulars in laboriously polished steel. He had been stripped of all his finery now. How is Agilus both the statue and the second soldier who runs underground with Agia? I can speculate. And guess what? I'm willing to do that. Here you go. When the soldier takes Jahi and runs underground, we never encounter the second soldier again in this play. This, quote, going underground implies that the soldier, a soldier from House Absolute, where he might encounter Agia and Thecla together, just as in the play, and a statue too, that soldier's actions lead to Agia's death and, well, it seems, got himself killed too. Uh, possibly Agia was killed by the injuries inflicted by Thecla in the antechamber. That's is my best guess. But the soldier also dies somehow, and this is implied in the play. And that soldier's name? Cadro. And the statue? The one of the new race whose descendants will lead to the birth of the Hierogrammates? who has fallen in love with Agia, maybe due to a glamour of some sort. Remember, she calls the statue lover. I think maybe it was Christopher Taylor who suggested that Jahi's jewelry might be symbolic of a glamour. Uh, sorry if I'm wrong, but thanks for whoever uh, said that otherwise. And to add to the confusion, Agia was wearing a pavanine gown when Severian met her. That's the color of the book of the Autarch's office. Anyway, the statue now obsessively in love with Agia, like Jonas is in love with Jolenta. Agia is dead. Agilus is dead. The statue begins to dig up their bodies and resurrects them both, turning the soldier's body into a statue that he can inhabit or direct to and be with Agia. Agilus calls her my love. That's the statue weeping for his lost lover, digging in the ground. He resurrects Agia. He inserts himself into the soldier's body, Kadra's body, in the same way that the... Um, future being, the future humanity is being inserted or not into the statue. And this is why Agilus at the duel calls himself Cadro of the 17 Stones. Suddenly, Agia's vendetta ride against Severian makes a whole lot more sense. And that is why when Severian first meets Agilus, he initially takes him for a stuffed corpse. That is why the bells ring as Mark agrees, I think, uh, that it's explained in the Earth of the New Sun that bells represent the coming of the new sun. The bells ring when Severian enters the shop because Agilus is from beyond the coming of the new sun. They live together in Nessus as a couple. If you think it's improbable that a couple like that would live as poor, murderous rag shop owners, imagine what your life would be like if you went back a thousand years and married a local girl. What would you do for a living? Did I not say back in chapter 30, of shadow that Agilus seems to be a man caught out of time. So I'm going to let someone else work out the rest of the story for now. I've given you people enough hooks in this play to help me out here. And that's what I got. Okay. So if I get the final word, then um, we come back sort of to, to what I think the, the play is and what it, what it is as an allegory. Okay. So, couple things for me that like I wanted to know when we came to this what is the play about what is it doing what's it trying to say and all that kind of thing so the way I think about it now like if I'm just going to step all the way back and say what's going on here I kind of see it as here is Talus who has put this thing together from an admittedly cobbled together thing of sources the fact that it's from Talus 
is now to me kind of even more interesting because Talos is in some ways the intelligence that Baldanders is losing because he's somebody's got to take care of him. But being in an Android in some way or another, Talos is also not really able to be productive. Um, he can't really make Baldanders do anything. He just takes care of him. He's also not a fully human thing, so he can't make something. Uh, but what he can do is tell a story obliquely. And I've always had a sort of more positive feeling of Talos. But anyway, all of that's just to say that if if you're going to ask like, okay, this whole play is in essentially, it's told by Severian, yes, that he's recalling things, but Talos wrote it. The fact that Talos wrote it, I now kind of see is important because it's almost his way of saying, hey, I'm helping out this guy, Baldanders, who is messed up and who is going to fail in his mission. But for some reason or another, Talos seems to have always known something about what's going on. He knows what Severian quote unquote means, right? Because he always talks about Severian in the sort of allegorical form, death and the maiden and all that. And he's canny enough to know the difference between, you know, saying that, that one thing that, that there can be multiple meanings, right? He's not like, he doesn't literally believe that Severian is the coming of death in this form, right? He's playful when he says it. He's always sort of speaking out of both sides of his mouth at once. So what he does is he writes this story that maybe so far as he can tell puts together in the end, it's a little bit of a prophecy. It's a little bit of maybe a kind of explanation of what might be going on in the world. And it's possibly to his way of getting across part of the real meaning of the book of the new sun that we, he says, of course, in the beginning that he's read. Um, okay. What that means to me then is that the point of the story is that here's this guy who's really, really quite canny, but who doesn't have any other way to get his ideas across, but who, for whatever reason, and some of it may be kind of quote unquote mystical, just like when he talks about the whole thing with Frankenstein, he's like, Oh, look, our story here is being told through the past that we're, we're, we're sort of telling things like we caused the, the, that great story, Frankenstein, that I'm the only person who remembers. We caused that to come into existence by our, our existence here. And it tells our story, but it tells it incorrectly, but it still gets the heart of, of what's going on. Um, okay. And Frankenstein can be seen as the story of both tragic science that goes in sort of horrible ways, but also shows that there's a heart that's missing from science. In a lot of ways, that's kind of what we talked about with Baldanders before, right? That what he does is he sort of is, is too much of a pride. So you got the Dr. Frankenstein side, too much pride of science that has lost the heart that the monster actually kind of has. And, and so there, that may be Baldanders turning around at the end. Anyway, all of which is to say what the play is doing is just telling you the backstory. And it really is just like Mark said, it's sort of bringing up a whole lot of big thematic moves to give you a kind of shape of a lot of hints that have come up in other places of the, the story. And sometimes it is, yeah, connecting to actual characters and things that are going on, like the familiar and Severian. We get the torture, the torturers who are there. We also get the Megatherians. We get Nod, Baldanders. We, we, we get all these things that are actual characters and they're all mixed up. And everything though is told obliquely in this weird allegorical way where things mean things in a certain context at one time. And they might mean something different 
at a different context at another time. And just to point out our different ways of reading it, that's not arbitrary. It's just that you got to be paying attention to like, okay, what's going on in this thing? What is it closest to that it's trying to explain from other books and that kind of thing. But I don't think it's intended to be literal because it's explicitly presented as something that obviously has a biblical type of name. It's a play that's very stylized in the middle of an otherwise realistic novel. So it's not just supposed to be another realistic novel. Like it has a, a sort of genre history where you read everything obliquely. You're supposed to. You're supposed to figure out, okay, well, what is this most like? What is this most likely to mean? What kind of light could this shine on something that's similar in other parts of the book that um, I know now and, and that I can see and read out? Um, so I don't, and, and there, the tricky part with that is that there aren't hard and fast rules for exactly how to interpret that. Okay. So anyway, all that's said and done and go back and listen to the very first part of the play where I rambled on about allegory, <laughs> but, um, not nearly but, enough for everybody, I guess not. So maybe <laughs> if I do, if I do write out my, my things sometime after I've got something else, I got to finish writing first, but once I, once I get that done, but no, in terms of then what I think it actually is about, it is about saying that what's at stake in the world here is the evolution of humanity and the ways that there are different forces that are fighting for it, trying as in the Megatherians or, or the Hyrodules are helping it go one way. There are the Megatherians that are trying to corrupt it for their own purposes. Then there are forces like Nod that are trying to get involved in it. Um, but there may be sort of sub tragedies and Nod's story is kind of a sub tragedy of, of, you know, one way to try and, and maybe help Meshia get his son-in-law out there in the world um in other words to help humanity evolve but who does things in the wrong way and and fails and and that messes things up and then the larger story is yeah like mark says it's it fits really well with how the new sun sorry how earth of the new sun gives a theodicy and basically says even things that seem like they're against the overall plan of the world becoming better, those things get turned to good. Um, and Jahi and Nod are both that story. And I think that's probably why so much of the end of the play is about those ideas. The first half of the play seems more about setting up to me those those thematic resonances, resonances and, and showing you suggestions of how certain moments and things that you know from other parts of the book or the four books could be involved in that. Um, but you're a lot of the stuff you're not going to get until, you know, things that happen in sword and things that happen in Citadel. And then you can come back to it. Now, one question for me, in any words, that's all of which this sort of different way of saying what Mark said, the, like, I agree with really, I, I see that. And as you can see, we've talked about for the last, however many hours about the thing. I oh, think can I, I, can, can, we can, can talk about question? how to do it. Before yeah, sure. You I interrupted you. You can interrupt me. <laughs> well, are you saying then that the play is rather than a laying out of events in the book of the new sun or the new sun, a gesture toward those books. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're definitely still about things that happen in, in the story. I mean, they're, they're about the megatherians like Jahi being wanting to try and mess with Meshia and, and to mate with him and seduce something and make the future, off the new humanity be more like her. Yeah, totally. That's what the Megatherians are doing in the world by trying to, to corrupt humanity. I mean, that's what we're 
we're sort of getting a sense of what's going on in the backstory that we've known about ever since there were the giant ladies in the lake in the you know second chapter. So, so yeah, there. I mean, it, totally. Um, now, one thing I I have a problem for myself is that I don't know how much of that would be clear just from the four books. Um, like I don't, and I don't know that that's a fault because I think Wolf intended this to be kind of a lot of it told elliptically. Um, I think you can get the sort of thematic point of a lot of that come through. Uh, I don't think you could specifically intuit what happens with Baldanders and uh, uh, Jeterna at the end of Earth. Like, I don't think you could get that from the play if Earth of the New Sun hadn't been written. Maybe you could. I don't know. But I think you can still get the point that um, there are forces at work that are trying to to still make some good outcome, even in the midst of all these other evil forces trying to, to turn humanity against it. So what you get from the play then is a story where Meshia shows up, says, hey, I'm going to bring about the new humanity. And then some stuff interrupts that, right? Jahi and Meshian end up fighting. They have to run off. There's stuff in the world with the Autark that, that messes things up for that. And then you come to the end where Meshian keeps saying, hey, we're, we're right on the cusp of this great new thing about to happen. We're almost there. And the play stops. The play doesn't tell you whether or not they're actually successful, right? The play doesn't tell you what's going to actually happen in the world. What it does do, though, is it sets up this sense that the future of humanity is really what's at stake here, um, that that's, that's what's really going on. And I feel like from a even someone who had read, like if Earth of the New Sun had ever had never been written, you could still read the play after having read the books. You could still read the play and be like, okay, I think this is saying that there's a lot of fight over what's going to happen, but that it's probably going to turn out well in the end. That it's it's kind of like the play stops right before we see what happens to the Autark. We don't see Meshia again, so we don't know who he ends up mating with, and we don't know what actually happens to that new son. But we do know that the new son is coming, and Gabriel has kind of already come in and said, oh yeah, it happens. We're just kind of here the night before. Um, so from the play, you do get a lot of suggestions that are like, okay, we're moving towards some new thing. And we get shapes of that later on. Um, so, but what I feel like the play really does for the four books is it sets up the stakes of what Severian's story is. And it is ultimately the evolution of humanity. And if you remember new, the green man section, and if you remember, um, uh, master ashes point about how there there's two good ways that things could come about. Um, and if you remember other things that we find out like Syriaca's story and all of that, you can at least put together that, okay, what's going on is some kind of story about different cosmic and or alien and or just giant power forces that are fighting over how to create a new race of humanity. And that that has very, very, very kinds of biblical um, and Christian overtones to what that is. Now, when you get Earth of the New Sun, like Earth of the New Sun, like just spells out certain things about about that even even though the parts of the the literal story of earth of the new sun are still confusing in certain ways by the time you're done with earth you do know like okay well this is kind of like a resurrection an evolution um it's also de definitely a theodicy that even things that looked like they were going to turn against you um can come in and i have a feeling obviously can't know this but i have a feeling that what wolf did was say okay here's some things i was kind of thinking about suggesting in the play 
how can I make the story that's I got in the play fit those themes? And then the story of Nod's failure, but chaining himself to turn all these things coming together at the last point, not him almost destroying things. Then you get Earth of the New Sun, which says, yeah, and actually it turned out okay because Baldanders realized the error of his ways and Jeterna fell in love with Severian and so she was actually seduced for him and that fits really well with, with what was going on in that. Um, and I can see that. Like I can definitely see him saying, okay, I've got to make something in Earth of the New Sun sort of resolve what happened in the play. Um, and this seems like a cool way to tell these stories that that still fits with everything I've said so far and may have been what he had in the back of his mind with the rest of Jaterna's story and the rest of Baldander's story. Um, and it seems to fit really well. Like I do think, like I actually do feel like the way Mark described how this, how Earth of the New Sun both clarifies and sort of extends things that happen in the play, I feel like it works pretty well. Um, and it makes sense to me. So, um, but I feel like, like if you're just going to ask, okay, what does the play do right here? It doesn't necessarily spell out the outcome. Like it doesn't spell out. Yes. Severian will go and pass the test, which he will bring about, you know, a new kind of sun, which will flood the earth and bring about Ushas. It doesn't directly spell all that stuff out, but it does spell out the meaning behind that thing. Um, in, in all that it's talking about while also really spelling out the idea that there are all kinds of things that could go wrong and that need to be turned around and updated and, and, and turned to something good, just like Nod needs to be turned to something good. He wants to mate with, with, or wants his offspring to mate with Messia and become a better species. You've got the torturers, which call themselves mercy, but they're, and he's doing his duty, but he's not doing it you know, in the right way that we can obviously tell, but he can't. So you have all these moments in there that fit the themes of Book of the New Sun still really well. But yeah, so I feel like it, it there is a way to do that. And I will try to write all that out in a little bit more of a point by point way. Um, but I, 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 that, that's what I take away from the play. So I want, <laughs> I want to, I want to read that. <laughs> so I, I will try to do it. So I have to send it to Mark too. Cause, cause, because it's basically, I kind of want to figure out how to, yeah, do that as well. But, but no, so that's, that's, that's my takeaway from it. I wanted to know, like, my big thing was, okay, not just what does the play mean, but really what is its purpose in the four books of the Book of the New Sun? And yeah, it, it, now I actually see how the parts are trying to set up the stakes of the backstory of what Severian's involved in. Yeah. So this is, you, because, because so much of, of Mark's interpretation is that this is laying out the future. How do you how do you mean to say that this is setting up the backstory of this play? Well, first of all, the first half is all sort of quote unquote backstory. It's backdrop. Um, even if it's talking about the plan that uh, the Yasadis would have for how humanity is going to evolve, it's just flat out telling you, yeah, okay, here's this thing about humanity after a flood and there being a new race of man that's going to come that's going to be better than the old ones i mean you can tie that to what the green man said pretty explicitly and you can tie it to how master ash tells the story about like like what my future is like where it's empty and and we've kind of annihilated ourselves um you can put those pieces together and and see that oh yeah it's it's sort of saying you know and and plus the whole thing about when Gabriel says, you know, we're, we're on the night between 
the rising of the new sun. And then, of course, everything in the story that's talking about the conciliator and the coming of the new sun and how things will be saved. Um, it's it's saying, yeah, that that is something that that is is going to happen. And it's a it's a mythic thing. And so you can you can have that. So do you believe that the prophet then is the conciliator? That's also caught. That's also veers off from Mark's theory. Um, well, I mean, or, or, or do you see the conciliator somewhere else? I don't want to presume. Uh, do I see the Like, I don't see the conciliator as necessarily a character in the play. You know, if, if anything, I mean, a good way to see, I don't know if Mark, how you feel about this, but, but if you want to look for a character in the play that might be the conciliator, it could well be Nod's son-in-law, <laughs> right? Who is... That, well, isn't that Meshia? He says he constantly equates that. We're, or he, we're the, the offspring of them, because oh, what oh, that's going to be is then something about a higher humanity, call it God, call it spirit, but in the body of these Nod creatures who are body, who are born of Gaia, Gaia, which is a human, a physical worldly human, you know, and, and again, even that though is still metaphorical. It's not like the conciliate, like I'm not saying that's Jesus. Like I'm not going to be like that. That's where Jesus comes from. But what that would be is kind of like, like the conciliator is the one who helps bring about the new sun and, and the new humanity. And what that's going to be is a higher level of physical real humans, right? I mean, it's, it's going to be evolution, but it's not going to be going to heaven. It's not like your soul after death. It's going to be an evolution of humanity living in the world. So the, the only time that, the, the new sun actually shows up. I mean, besides the metaphorical new sun that they talk about yeah. coming is when, you know, the Contessa sees that glimpse on the path of air and she's like, I caught a glimpse of him. And I think he's something new that we haven't thought of. Oh uh, yeah. That could be the, yeah, yeah. that's, that's him yeah. showing up. And that could be the conciliar. And what's cool about that is that doesn't have to be just her seeing Severian in a weird sci-fi mirror. Right. I mean, think of it this way. She's seeing repetitions of that person, right? Like she's seeing him in many different guises. Mm -hmm. If Severian is a Christ figure, then in a certain both literal and metaphorical sense, one window could be Severian. The next figure, the next window could be Jesus. The next window, you know, it's like it fits the kind of the figurative world in which this is all happening um, because they are serving similar purposes. You know, it's like one is always you know, the way that symbols work here is that, that, I mean, Severian is Christ insofar as he is a symbol of what Christ kind of means for a humanity, right. Of giving you a new start of giving you a new birth. Um, you know, is he actual, the literal Jesus Christ? No, of course not. He's Severian, but symbolically, yeah, that's what he is. So, um, um, and what's cool about so much about what Wolf does here is that, and this kind of goes back to the, what I feel like, or maybe some misunderstandings about literal and metaphorical meanings is that one thing that's so cool about new sun is that everything in here is always both a literal, a literal thing and a metaphor. Severian is a character in a made up world that we have here, um, who has a literal personality within his world, but he's also a metaphorical figure who is Christ-like who does things. I mean, that's just, he is both of those things at once. And Wolf is working in this world and this way of writing stories where things are always literal and metaphorical, um, in, in different ways, I guess call them in different, with different intensities <laughs> at different times, you know? So, um, so that's why one reason why it doesn't really bother me if at one point I think Nod is kind of like 
a representation of the more physical side of humanity and at other times specifically ball danders like because mm-hmm. things are always doing that in in this book it's just all of the the the, the swings are much more intense when they're in a play that's like a fictional thing within fiction and and you know it's it it doesn't have to be one or the other anyway that's a long-winded answer but i <laughs> especially because of the kind of thing that the play is supposed to be um whether you're talking about it having a metaphorical meaning or a literal meaning it just needs to make sense it doesn't have to always be one or the other and you don't have to decide beforehand okay it's it's only going to be meaningful if it fits a specific event that happens somewhere um because you know is is there an actual gabriel figure somewhere else i don't think so um you know but do we know what he's doing in there in that purpose yeah he's he's being we had talked about him as zadkiel zadkiel yeah i mean and it could be zadkiel but obviously what gabriel's doing is is also being something that kind of says hey he represents transition yeah. And he's also like there. He's like, hey, reader, you know what I am. I'm from the quote unquote real world where I tell you, you know, where I'm the one who can mark the difference between the two worlds. And that's that counts as quote unquote proof that he's reality in this sense, because he's like, that's what the that's what the symbol does is it shows within this world that, yeah, I'm I'm your proof that that you're supposed to think in biblical terms for this thing um, because of what I, what I am and how my function works and whatnot. Um, but do I actually have to translate him into a specific guy? I don't, I don't think so, you know, so, because yeah, it's like, does Zadkiel ever specifically say that? And does Zadkiel speak to an audience and, and say like, my purpose here is to metaphorically be, no, he doesn't do that. That's good. That's enough. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I want to interrogate your, your position rather than, um, rather than to argue against it um i do agree that gabriel is probably not a person he's a he's a convention of plays right he's yeah he has yeah. A, he serves the same he's he's the same type of creature as when the lights dim between exactly. the acts right and that's i think what i was trying to say about like with you needing to have the the literal and the figurative like especially in the play so many things about that are also supposed to be conventional kind of things which your allegorical figures have these conventions of i represent an abstract thing but i'm also supposed to be a character in a story and so you know i'm both of those things and sometimes i'll be more of more of one than the other because that's the convention of well i guess i agree kind of with i agree with that except that i am dubious that at any time he the characters stop being one and become in order to become the other do you know, you know what I mean? I think that, yeah. Okay. So yeah, they can be, they can be, um, they can have metaphorical content, but that carries through all the time in order to elucid, elucidate the, the actual literal character who exists in the plot that is referencing. Yeah. I just don't think Wolf works that way. I think he slips into the metaphorical and, and, and the literal, like he goes back and forth between them freely. Uh, and you know, there, there are some scenes in Wizard Knight, for example, where it's clear that he suddenly slipped into this very clear metaphor for a biological process. And then it goes right back into a narrative that's dreamlike that no longer seems to do the same kind of thing. Uh, and there are many, many cases. And I'm, I'm not going to get into that. I don't think he does it as much in New Sun. Yeah, but I would think 
too, just on the, your point about that, Mark, the way the Brown books work is specifically playing with that. Whereas like yeah. you'll have a moment where someone is obviously an idea, right? Like the, right. the sun is obviously the thing, but then just to get the story moving along. Okay. But he had to do all this in one night or whatever. So it becomes a mechanical thing about the literal existence of that, but then it switches back to this other thing. And you're, you don't have to, you don't have to make every part of those be totally consistent with both the real world and the thing it's like some sometimes it is just a story just to get the story going and other times it is just things so yeah but the brown book stories i feel like are another example of that where where i don't think you could make both a literal and a metaphorical meaning equally right with for every little detail that's in there right so it depends on the context so but that's a lot for people to chew on all right yeah it's mark you're gonna round it up hey the play is the thing <laughs> oh wow that's deep <laughs> honestly though like the my favorite thing about having done this even though we've spent a ton of time on the play is that i do think a lot of people skip over it on rereadings because people have said that and because i know i did and to actually try like we've done to go line by line and try at least to to make some suggestions of how all the different parts work like that's something I had always wanted for the play. And so I feel like to have done that now, even if it's in a super exhaustive format, which did go in a bunch of different directions, like that's one thing I don't think is necessarily out there. So yeah, there should be a, there should be a genre of wolf uh, podcasting where people just create podcasts just to go through the play in this <laughs> well, way I, and see what happens. Well, I was going to say, Mark, when I first bought beyond light and shadow before I had ever even like really talked to you. Mm -hmm. That's what I was hoping I would find. Would, was, is he going to give me like a full on, just like breakdown <laughs> of the play? I was so hoping for that, but, but I kind of got it now after this from, yeah, you. it kind of needs to be done, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like we did it overall. Okay. So we just got to yeah. somebody transcript it and clean it up. <laughs> and how do you do a little orderly document like that with, and include all of the infighting? Yeah. I, that's, that's a now because once you get into that, then you're getting into like medieval Talmudic stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Talmudic <laughs> stuff too, or, or cannot it like medieval things. It starts looking like trip trap. Exactly. exactly. Or the earth list or the earth. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But Mark, thanks for taking all this time to do this with yeah, us. Thank we, you guys. It's been a pleasure. James and I are used to wasting a ton of time doing this, but it's, it's so great to have another voice in, um, especially for something that hasn't been talked about in a ton of detail before. So I appreciate that. All right. I appreciate you guys too. Are you guys, you have anything more to say on your it, side? It, it has all been said already. I am done and Meshia <laughs> is undone. <laughs> and don't forget, go out by Mark's second volume. It's beyond time, between light and shadow and then beyond time and memory. Beyond time and memory. All right. Yeah. yeah. Look, there's a, a lot of open interpretations left to be said, no matter whose methodology that you use. Right. Yeah. Yep. So um, I have. No doubt that here that we now be reached in the end, we're going to hopefully hear other people try to take on this play holistically. And that's a, and I got to say, that's the one reason why I said, okay, we should probably bring Mark onto this because at least Mark has a holistic method. Yep. To take away yes, I want to hear uh, Lee Berman. Lee Berman has a holistic uh, approach to this play. I want to hear some more holistic approaches. And uh, I don't care whose who's methodology you use. Be, I, I want to hear you use mine because I want to hear what other interpretations come up. But so when you do it, just go ahead and reach out to us on the Facebook group or on Twitter or on Instagram or on Reddit 
or on the Patreon or on the Master Slack channel if, if you happen to be a Master Patron. And just bring them all, all your questions, your comments, your complaints, and your new theories there. And until you hear from us next, when uh, this play blows up, <laughs> then may the more have faith in you. And now we can get back to the actual Severian story after Yes. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody. I want to be Jahi when the time comes. <laughs> Works for <Okay>. me. <laughs> Works for me. So weren't you doing it, Mark? I think you were. Uh, yeah, I'm the familiar. Okay, that's going to be a real issue if you're going to be Jahi, though. So No, no, it's I, okay. I can do it. I'll do different voices. <laughs> Sometimes a mountain leaping into the ocean is just a uh, no. No, I'm, I'm recording. You don't hear me? I mean, do you hear me? Do you hear me? Oh, now you're back. Yep. So, okay. Your power, well, power flicker again? No, not on I, this side. Oh, okay. My power flickered last night, or I mean this morning, but it hasn't. I can't hear you. Severian? Because oh. he's the one can you hear me? the wheel in the end. Can, I okay. can hear both of you Do you hear guys. me now? I cannot hear James. Oh, okay. Uh, I can now. hear you. So James, can it you says you're now. offline. I'm going to move to a better place. And now I can't hear James either. Okay. Let's see. Let me this just. This might be doomed.
Mm, it's weird though. Ooh, ooh. What we can do is I can read James's parts and pretend to be James. Okay, there, you hear me now? I hear you finally. Okay, yep, I hear you. And actually, if you get a chance to ever see um hold on, what's his name? Director. Uh he did uh Director Magic Fleet. You'll know who it is, famous. Um uh, da, 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 did death playing chess what's his name uh oh uh ingrid berman ingrid berman yeah he did it yep well i would just say yeah, anytime yeah, I you deal been, james yeah. i have been yeah it's we like have you, been you don't realize yeah. that i've been doing that the whole time yeah but you've been mark you can't as i said you've whenever you run into a problem where the very literal events no, that we whenever have, you mark, run into a problem mark, james, settle down. it's not a problem mark, for me. It's no you no mark oh, listen i'm sorry nope okay. nope nope, nope. 